Dum 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 dum. Yes, we're live, John Dudley. Put hey, the buddy. phone away and let's get popping. No, up? I got. I, t- I have some some important subjects that I wanted to vent about. So oh, did you had... put them on uh, a, like a little note? Yeah, I got a notepad. I, I'm pretty good about doing homework, so I love your podcast. So listening through, there was crap you talked about. I was like, oh yeah, I got to get on. Oh, that. you got to bring that up. Yeah. So John Dudley, world famous archery coach, uh, he's got a TV show, he's got a podcast. Uh, found out about you because of. The TV show first, the podcast second, which I became obsessed with. If you're into archery, like I know some of these people that are listening to this podcast, they get into archery because it, it sounds fun. Like, ooh, maybe I need a new hobby. And uh, then you go down that crazy rabbit hole. Well, when I found you, you're you're down the rabbit hole like a few light years. You're gone, man. Freaking Johnny Depp down <laughs> in that deep. <laughs> Johnny <Yeah>. Deep. <laughs> you're gone. You're gone down the, the the archery rabbit hole. I had no idea the rabbit hole goes so deep. But let's show this video. We're going to play this video. This is uh, oh, yeah. before John came up here. He did it. Now, I just need to explain how difficult it is just to even hit a target at 100 yards. This is at 100 yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Hundred yards is a foot length of a football field. I'm gonna shut that thing off. It's off. Just shut the uh, volume off there. Um, Hundred yards is the length of a football field, and for archery, it's just it's so hard to hit something as wide as your wingspan at a hundred yards for the average person. And so John made this ridiculous shot on uh, one of the gorilla kettlebells from on it. <laughs> yeah. This was. Uh... So we'll All play right, this, this here. This is going to be an unbelievable challenge. I've got Joe Rogan's favorite workout tool. I've got an Onnit kettlebell primal, and Kong is going to have to make a decision whether he's going to let this arrow pass or not. I'm going to try to put an arrow through that two-inch handle right there. And actually, at this distance of 100 yards, and the angle that arrow has to come in, I bet it's even smaller. This is going to be an unbelievable challenge. Definitely going to have to defy the odds. My idea is to put them right here on this shelf, and I've got a curtain right behind, so hopefully it'll stop the arrow, but also let it do its thing so that (laughs) we can capture all this on tape right at dark. I'm going to put an arrow through a two-inch gap in the handle if Kong lets it pass. There he is. <laughs> Let's check it out. It's so ridiculous that that <laughs> actually went flying. in that little hole at 100 yards. Did you have to try more than one attempt? I, this was actually was my awesome. first shot with everything set up because I had to do a little bit of homework. What I did was I knew I couldn't see the hole in the handle good enough to aim at it. So I actually sighted my bow in to where I hit four and a half inches high from Kong's face. So I literally aimed right at Kong's shiny face and I had my bow sighted in to hit four and a half inches high to make it through the gap. That's insane. Yep. Yeah. My wife's filming right here. Sharon was running the iPhone, but I had four cameras out so we could get some cool angles and stuff. And I wanted to wait till night so that that lighted knock could give a little bit more wow factor for everyone watching. 
This is it such, it's such a ridiculous shot. But this is yards. Thanks to the on it people too for that was awesome getting that thing. Look at that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. There you go, Joe. How awesome is that? It's pretty amazing. And you can watch that on YouTube. It just went up uh, on YouTube. On the knock on yeah. archery. Yeah, not, did you guys put it up too? We'll put a link up. Okay. Jamie, yeah, just put, awesome. if you can, tweet it, and I'll, I'll retweet it when we get a chance. Um, that That's insanely hard to do. It's uh, I mean, I never did any archery whatsoever until about three years ago. I mean, maybe I might have done it. I think I might have done it in the Boy Scouts. Yeah, everyone shot, says that. Yeah. You know what's funny is every person that finds out, I'm, one, they're in disbelief that there's actually, like, professional archers. But then... They say, oh, I tried archery, like, back in school one time in gym, and I loved it. And But then everyone says, but I hit my arm. Right. <laughs> they, re they, like, remember that they tried it once and they loved it, but they hit their arm. That's what they always say. Yeah, that's. I always thought you had to wear those wrist things. Like, when I would see people that were shooting bows without those wrist things, I'm like, they're, like, riding a motorcycle without a helmet. <laughs> These people are crazy. They're loose people. Well, the way some people shoot, it is like riding a bike without a helmet. You peel some skin off if you do it the wrong way. Well, that's what I've been going into over these last couple of days with you, and it's one of the more, more fascinating aspects about this. I, I, wanna, I don't want to call it a sport because I, I think archery is a lot of different things. It's a discipline mm -hmm. for sure. But in when it's done correctly, in a lot of ways, it's almost like a martial art. It's like a learning. It's like a weapon art. Like in martial arts, when you see someone do something, like if someone's like really good at judo or something like that, like when they execute a throw and it's just perfect position and perfect technique, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like a beauty to it. Yep. And when you see an an archer, like I was talking to you about that this when I was watching and trying to get it in my head this sort of flow that you have in what you do. And it's super similar in a lot of ways. And something that I really didn't predict, like, I guess I just always assume that I kind of know what something is if it seems pretty straightforward. Like, oh, yeah, you pull this, the string back and then you let the arrow fly. Pretty straightforward. Like, I think that's most people's idea of what archery is. But then when you really pay attention to the technical aspects of all the different stuff that's going on and all the different things you think about and how you literally cannot have anything on your mind other than all the technique involved, your foot placement, your technique in standing, your breathing, where how you're drawing it back, the position of your front shoulder, the position of your rear elbow, how you're pulling, where how do, what do you how do you respond after the arrow's released? There's so much going on that like when you put it all together like it, it has, it leaves no room for homework. There's no room for relationship bullshit. There's no room for taxes. There's no room in there, man. If you want to make a nice shot like that, like I guarantee you, if we could have a brain scan of your head, the second you release that arrow at a hundred yards to go in that two inch gap, there would be nothing in there other than what you did. It yeah, would, there no. would be no other, no other cells would be fired up. No, no, that's one thing. And actually like, Yesterday when we were shooting, there, towards the end of the day, you got to the point where you were almost, your mind was clear. It's almost like, for me, you know, your family came home, like things were winding down. You knew that, like, work was over, and we it was, like, right before dark. And, like, for me, I love shooting at first light and at last light. 
because it seems like that's when I'm not really worried about someone texting me or calling me. I'm not worried about a problem at home. And I shoot with a clear mind, and I, I'm way more efficient at my practice, and it is a form of meditation. I mean, it's like you said, it's an art, and if you're clouded, then you it will reflect that on the target. I mean, it's like if your arrows are in one spot, then you know you have a single focus. And it's almost like the more those arrows are spread, that's a representation of how many other thoughts and distractions you have going in your mind. I mean, and I look at it that way when I shoot. I'm trying to narrow everything down to just a movement. And you look at good golfers, the ones that swing easy and it just literally looks like flow, they're such good strikers and they're so much more efficient. When you see people that are trying to be robotic and and almost like hack something, then it's like too systematic. You know, you see someone like that does professional karate or something, if they're in a forms competition, if they're like real rigid going around, it's just not what it's meant to be. I mean, it's supposed to be a dance. It's supposed to be like literally a mental musical that's playing. And if your mind is clear, then it's it's a form of meditation. It really is. No question about it. And that same state of total, complete concentration exists in a bunch of different disciplines. And, I, you know, finding it in archery now, rec- or I should say recognizing it, I definitely mm-hmm. haven't hit it, but finding that, seeing it, and recognizing that sort of super high-level flow that comes into play when someone's excellent at what they do. Um, I've seen that in pool. I've seen that watching yeah. professional pool players. Like um, a perfect example, like you were talking about, like striking the ball really hard as a golfer. There's a guy named Francisco Bustamante. He's one of the best pool players in the world. <clears throat> and he's from the Philippines. And Francisco Bustamante has the most ridiculous break. You would think if you watch his break shot that he weighs 400 pounds and has arms like tree trunks. You you watch that break, it's just blah blah. If those it was balls just go the close flying. up on the triangle. But if you watch him, you just watch the speed of the ball, and it's effortless. The way he does it is just he has this perfect amount of timing and flow. Here you can see him do it here. Now, this isn't him. This is a different guy. If you just look up uh, Bustamante, Francisco Bustamante breaking. That's what it says. That's what it, says. it says that there. Yeah. Well, this is definitely not him. This is a some overweight gentleman. What if he gained? Oh, weight? that is him. That is him. He's just—it's <laughs> oh, a weird. He's in a weird pose. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, okay. Oh, it's just a weird pose. I thought he, when he was bent over, I thought he that was his whole body. Up. Yeah, he is loading. But he's up. a tiny guy. Like if you see really? him physically, yeah. I mean, he it might weigh like. Well, he's a little fat now. He's getting older. But when he was young, he probably weighed like 140 pounds. But he was like, Bob Blam. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, look at those balls. <laughs> they go flying everywhere. No one's like him. Yeah, yeah, dog, get yeah, after it. he's excited. I think he just won on the break or something like that. That he, is sweet. I've seen him make six balls on the break. Like, he's playing nine ball. He makes six balls on the break. He's got three balls to run out. He's just insanely good. But he's just a devastating player all around. And one of the things when you watch him play, and a lot of the Filipinos, Filipinos are so good. There's so many really good Filipino pool players. But they have this gentle flow to what they're doing. Like everything is like like a ballet, like effortless. The, The weight of the cue does like all the work. And everything looks like... It looks like so flowing and like a dance. Yeah, like a dance. Well, the one thing that's so cool about 
Well, the one thing I'm really proud of as an archer is that I've got to the point where I have a platform to get people involved. And that was when I found out that you really liked my podcast, which the podcasts are totally geared around education and learning. You know, that's what that I got to a platform to where I could help people. And now there's people like you that are coming in that never really have considered that whole world. And they come in and I look at people that like, you know, they go to the YMCA, they want to take like Tai Chi or they want to take yoga. They're looking for a stress-free type of hobby. And archery is a great sport for that. It's growing so much. I mean, Hollywood's embracing it, obviously, with a lot of the movies, but they're they're not portraying it as an art form. Yeah, and is, when that movie, the, what the hell is it called? Hunger Where's Games. the girl? The girl Hunger Games, yep. yeah. When she started becoming more famous, or that movie, rather, became popular, archery took off, didn't it? Oh, there was, yeah. Like, a lot of people got involved. Yeah, I mean, you look at... Um, you look at the Avengers, you look at, mm-hmm. you know, Hunger Games. There's there's actually so many, even a lot of the sitcoms now, you know, obviously crossbows are popular because of The Walking Dead. But when it comes to, like, true archery, you just see a lot more archers coming in. Lord of the Rings, you know, Legolas was so popular because of, you know, because of that. And it's really such a cool sport. I mean, it's an Olympic sport, and we've we've actually have a phenomenal Olympic team here in the U.S. Our men's team is definitely going to be contenders for another medal. They were silver medalists last year. And so you were saying that compound bows are not in the Olympics? It's no. recurve bows? Yep, it's recurve bows, and that's it's kind of a tradition, and honestly, it's a different style of art, but it's, it's super graceful, too. And, I mean, yeah. I think it's everyone has something that they like to do. Some people like the simplicity of a sport. It's like there's people that go and want to only have a longbow or they don't want sights. They just want the zen part of trying to pull back with with no sights. But then there's also people like us that want to see how finite and accurate you can become. So they like the techie side, which is where compound bows come in. They're just they're much more efficient and obviously the accuracy as we've seen is is almost mind-blowing at times. Pretty mind-blowing. And it's also for a guy like me, because I'm a, a, a gadget dork, so it combines both things. It combines the zen aspect of complete and total discipline and focus and looking at one task and b- drowning out the rest of the world, but it also has like geeky stuff, like different kinds of sights, and this is a new cam that they just came out with, and these are different kinds of strings, and when you do this, it makes this better, and there's just so much going on with it. Oh, yeah. You can, you know, if I look back at the bows I started with, and I've I've only been shooting professionally since 97, so, I mean, it's 19 years. I guess it seems, I'm, I'm getting old now, but... Um, That's the, a long time. The bows that I used then that are at the house... You wonder how in the heck you shot that good with them. And actually, um, two months ago, I was at the Olympic headquarters, like the Olympic Museum. So they have all these awesome Olympic artifacts of like swim trunks people wear or like, you know, the javelin. Um, Got to see the original recurve bow of like J-Bars was actually on display. And they constantly change them. So if you're visiting the museum, you're not seeing the same things all the time. But you look at those pieces of equipment the bikes i mean the bikes that people rode in the olympic games it's like holy cow how are they that efficient it's almost more impressive because now we've gotten so advanced in our equipment 
that it's easier to be at the level, I think, than 20 years ago because the equipment just wasn't there. You know, know, I almost wonder if those people didn't have to put in two or three times the time and be just that much more elegant at what they did because their equipment – was almost a handicap back then. Could they perform the same kind of feats? Like, could someone shoot an arrow like that? Like, was it a common thing to be able to shoot what you did, 100 yards, and shooting through that two-inch opening into the kettlebell handle? Um, I'm sure there are people that were. There's a lot. There's actually a lot of people in archery now that are pushing this envelope. I mean, long-distance shooting is becoming super popular. And, you know, to a lot of the real target archers that are out there that are listening to this podcast see when we go to a full FIDA tournament we shoot 30 what does FIDA stand for um well now it's world archery so like a world archery event if you shot a a full target round you would shoot arrows at 30 or 30 meters 50 meters 70 meters and 90 meters and i found out from you that 90 meters is 99 99 yards yards. it's one of the easiest metric conversions to do you take the first number and you add it to the second so if you got 40 take the four and add it behind the 40 you got 44 yards if it's 40 meters so yeah that's one of the the one metric system that i never forget but um so 99 yards is where we would stand on the line and shoot at, you know. And I, I think I told you that back in 2005, I was really focused on shooting well for the U.S. team when I was on the compound team. And there were several tournaments that I was really focused on. I knew that I was going to be shooting um, a national championship in in Britain and in Australia. I was going to be going. I think I had shot one in Poland um, had one, one or two here in the U S but you know, that year, I think I logged, I mean, I shot two, three, 400 arrows a day and 90 meters for me, the further you go out, it's like putting a bigger microscope on things that you're doing wrong. You know, it's, it's just like an art or, um, if you look at a golfer that's making long putts, obviously it's magnifying mistakes in their swing or, golfers that are drivers you know people that really are just sitting there trying to be accurate at the long game it magnifies mistakes so i really like shooting at longer distances i know you do too because it magnifies a mistake and you can correct it easier and it really helps bring things together but that year i shot well over thirty thousand arrows at 99 yards during That's during training insane <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and there's professional archers there's archers i guarantee you there's archers right now somewhere that's preparing for a world cup event or something and there's people that literally have calluses thicker than most weightlifters just from grabbing a hold of that release or you know i remember looking at a, an olympic recurve shooter's fingers one time um and I remember his his hands, his three fingers that he grabs his string with, it looked like a frog hand because the tips were so big from pulling blood. You know, oh, I wow. think because he, and I mean, these guys, you look at the people that are at like the Olympic training centers that are just there, they get up, they go eat, and then they shoot until five or six at night and they eat and then they go and do a weight training session. I bet you there's people that do it thousand arrows a day so i mean you know you can build up some stamina yeah it's it's really impressive um but in saying that i think with 
archery, it's, you know, you know that I'm really big into fitness as well. I credit my fitness and my story as an athlete prior to being an archer as part of what's helped me be successful. And there's a big difference between quantity and quality. And a lot of people make the mistake, I think, with any sport of just trying to practice more or train more and even weightlifters you know i see people that i go in the gym and they're like on one exercise and then when i leave the gym in 50 minutes or an hour they're like maybe done two different types of exercise and it's just it's not efficient you know i think a lot of people as athletes sometimes miss the boat of quality over over the quantity and and I was always that way. There's days where I go practice and I may only make a hundred shots, but once I start realizing that I'm breaking down, I know to step away. Right. You don't try to push through it. Yeah. And I told you that yesterday too. There was a time where I said, you know, if, if we're just out here getting repetition, I guess that's one thing, but we really don't need to do that aiming at a target. Well, you had a really good point too about those bad shots and bad repetitions. You got to yep. you got to get those out of your head. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that you made a bad shot. Now you have to make a bunch of good shots to try to get away with the, from the effect of the bad shot. It's not as simple as the one bad shot. No, it's imprinting. Yeah, I mean it's it's an imprint, and I think with any type of athletic. You know, and it's probably that way with fighters, I'm sure, too. If you get someone that's just really in a rhythm and in a flow, if all of a sudden they start making a mistake or doing something bad, as a coach, you try to get them back into that rhythm again so that you can weed out that imprint. You know, and that's tough as an athlete sometimes. You know, people that, and I'm sure for fighters, you know, you look at people that come out and have a disappointing loss. It's almost like that's an imprint. It is. And that's and it, why that statement, you're only as good as your last fight, yep. is so disturbing to fighters. Yeah. And, and that's one thing. One of the most important things that I learned as a competitive archer, and I, was, I had a temper when I first started as a pro. If I made a bad shot, you know, kind of like, when you kind of put one in the pool, <laughs> when you put one in the pool and you were like, friggin', you were pissed off. I, that's how I would be on a, on a, on a tournament. You know, I would freaking ram my stabilizer into the ground so hard that I would crack it. Well, my, my problem was that I just did it once. I did it. There's a, it's a really complicated, geeky sort of an explanation, folks, but there's a certain type of release where it's a tension-based release, and that's what we're practicing with. And the difference between you pulling a trigger and then allowing the tension, but you have to hold the safety while you pull it back. Otherwise, the arrow just boink, it just flies. I mean, it's not like it's not like it's going to shoot anything. It's going really slow, but it lobs in a very embarrassing and just very disappointing way. Just <laughs> boink, comes off your thing. As you're pulling the bow back, it goes doink, and you go, what the fuck? I did this again. I did it three times. I did it yesterday and today. Oh, it's so funny. Super, it, it's super embarrassing. But uh, so that's, uh, yeah, I was definitely uh, annoying myself. Well, when I would make something like that that would really trigger me into a pissed off realm, I would let one mistake affect everything else after that. And mm-hmm. a lot of athletes, the really good athletes that I watch in any sport, tennis players, golfers, the key is when you have a negative moment 
to not let it affect what hasn't happened yet. So um, a guy came up to me one time after I made a bad shot, and he could tell I was getting hot. And he looked at me and he said, you know, the only arrows you have control on right now are the ones that are still in that quiver. And for me, that like ch- it completely changed my outcome as a professional archer. And I've, I've brought so much of what archery has done to me as an athlete into my life. And there's times where you just, something really torques you off and you have to just like look at, okay, everything I do from here on out is the only thing I have control on because that's history. There's no, I haven't figured out a way once that release goes pling Mm -hmm. to actually grab that arrow and pull it back and stick it back in the quiver or put it back on the string. It's, it's like a perfect representation of life. You make a decision, if it was shit, you have to reset and say, what do I need to do with myself to get back on track in life? You mm. know, we make bad decisions at times, but how do we make a good decision to get back on, you know, get back online? Yeah, it's it's management of the mind in a lot of ways. Yep. And it's all one of the things that I also like about archery, love about archery, is that it's absolute. Like you, you can't pull that arrow back. Like it's flying through the air, and either it hits the bullseye or you missed. It's it's just it is what it is. It doesn't care about where you live. It doesn't care who your uncle is. It doesn't care how much money you make a year. It doesn't care. Like yep. the the arrow is going to go. It's an absolute discipline. And I think you coming from professionals or coming from sports rather sports background. You played a lot of football. Yep. Um. When you play sports, but especially insanely competitive sports, you learn where all of the edges are to be had. You learn where all the edges are to be had as far as technique, as far as conditioning, as far as all the different things you have to do in order to be successful and to win. And everyone knows that in most sports, especially in a physical sport like football, there's a fucking lot of work involved. There's not a single person who jumps off the bench who doesn't have any training whatsoever and kicks ass in football. You just don't. You got to learn. And you have to learn how to move. You have to learn all of the different plays. You have to learn technique involved in different aspects of the sport and i think coming from a competitive background in athletics you've kind of translated that understanding of where all the problems are in in archery because there's a lot of people that are like they they don't have good coaching and so they start off with a lot of really bad habits and then they have to figure out a way to either break those habits or they live with those habits and then they do the best they can with this sort of limited path that they've carved in and they seem to not be able to escape. The same thing exists in martial arts. One of the hardest things for me when I used to teach was teaching people that already had a bad technique imprinted in their brain. Mm. Like they would have one way of throwing a kick or something like that, and I would have to go, oh, Jesus, i got to figure out a way to break this guy of this thing because as soon as he gets tired or as soon as he panics, the knee goes down, the foot goes up, he loses all the power, the hips don't engage. It's, it's, it's a, like, but if I could take a kid, like a five-year-old kid, and show them that from the beginning, their instinct would be to throw it correctly. The instinct, even when tired, knee comes up, hip turns over, body extends, full power. And those things are so hard to unlearn once you get like a bad path. That's why... It's as I I really do think that archery in a lot of ways is a martial art. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, 
you look at the the whole Asian culture and I've said time and time again, I've coached all over the world and, you know, that's kind of what I do now. I do a lot of coaching that most people don't even know about with teams that just would rather have confidentiality and whether or not they're working with an outside source, which is great. But when I, the, probably the best place I ever taught was when I went to India because I actually taught those, I had, I was supposed to have 16 archers. Once I got there, there was about 140. I mean, it was unbelievable. Anyone they thought could be a potential winner for their team was there. And there were so many kids and, you know, adults that were there. And I remember I took several members of the team that had a bad habit of you know, punching the trigger and anticipating the shot, which is a big negative in archery. And I gave them a device, same one I gave you. I gave them a release that forces them to not think about actually aiming the front sight of the bow. It's a device that makes them focus on the movement of archery, pulling through the bow, letting the front arm go forward, the back arm to come back. And I remember I gave them string and that release. I took all their bows away and locked them up because I said, until you can do this, we're not going any further. So I took those eight and I had them do that to the side. And then I came over and I started trying to work on all these other people. And there was like, this person needed their bow worked on. This person needed to watch me shoot. This people wanted, you know, to take pictures or video of me shooting. Then we went to lunch. Then the whole thing started over again. Then when it came to dinner time, I told them, you guys all go ahead. I'm going to like pack up my gear. Well, once the whole big crowd left, those same eight kids were still over there with strings pulling on that release. And almost every one of them were damn near bloody in their hand from just executing And I came over, I'm like, oh, my goodness, have you guys been here the whole day? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There is like, there's, there, that culture, there's, it's just no wonder to me why, like, martial arts is such a discipline. Because that culture teaches discipline and hard work within that art better than anything. And I think that archery coming out of, you know, out of Asia, I think... Um, all the, like the Korean team are so strong because of their disciplines. And I'm sure with the martial arts, it's the exact same thing. They're not afraid to take what the coach says and just do it until the coach says no. And a lot of people here in any sport are looking for the shortcut. People at the gym, they want the shake. Yeah, they want the shake that you know, melts fat. They Mm -hmm. want to be able to go in and get the machine that, you know, does four minute abs or whatever. And the reality is you have to have commitment and you have to have discipline in anything in life. Otherwise, if you don't, you're just going to be another person bitching about why someone else has something you don't because you're not willing to put the effort in for it. Yeah. And then on the other hand, it's not a good idea to Cut your hands with the no. rope. You gotta yeah, take some time off, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slow, slow down. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and say, "Coach, can we take a break here?" And then I, I should point out to a lot of people that um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't want to get involved in anything like archery that aren't interested in it because they feel like uh, 
they they don't want to hunt. They don't want to be a bow hunter. I've I've heard that before. Oh, I'm not interested in that. And I'm like, if even if you're you don't have to be interested in that. Like that is that's the furthest end of the extreme spectrum when it comes to archery. You could enjoy archery with just a yard. A yard and a target. I mean, you can you don't need to shoot anything other than a target to and to get like you know yesterday and today we we're just shooting targets and very fun, super fulfilling. Like at the end of the day, you know, especially because yesterday we made a lot of progress. At the end of the day, I was like, wow, you know, this is feels great. It's, yeah, it's you've cleansing. Made, you've made a dramatic improvement. I mean, I'm I'm really pumped with how you are, but. What I love about archery is, hopefully you can't hear that. They can this is dang good. By the way, when 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 Joe does his um, commercials, which actually it's the only thing on TV I don't fast forward through the commercials because I love how you do them. But when he talks about the butter coffee, take his advice on it. It's good. I, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, get some good coffee, and actually the, some good grass-fed butter, and some MCT oil. It was blend it all up. It was yeah, it was awesome. I think what's so cool about archery too is it's it's not a sport that is limited by your age. And for that matter, it's not totally limited by your physical physique. Well, how about that guy that has no arms? Oh, yeah. Matt is yeah. unbelievable. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Matt Stutzman is, I mean, it should be Matt Studsman. He's, I mean, the armless archer. He's so inspirational. I mean, his, kind of his nickname is it's inspirational archer, and he's definitely just that. For someone to be able to to shoot with their legs is amazing. And actually, Matt, we haven't talked about this, but Matt and another pair of archer here from the U.S. named Jeff Fabry that shoots with his mouth. He was in a motorcycle accident, and now he's a pair of archer. Yeah, there's Matt Stutzman right there. And so how does Matt, he holds the, the bow with his right foot and then his left foot's on the ground, and how does he release the bow? So... Well, he's he's actually um, designed Jeff Fabry's next, I think, too, on to the right. But so he's developed a release to where he's actually able to push on it with his chin, and he's a, he actually activates from back tension now. They've designed a release for him where he can hook on, and he slowly starts to continue to move back until it triggers the string to fire. And as he moves back, he's still looking through his peep sight. Yep. Yeah, wow. it's a small movement. You know how small the movement is. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I talk about that movement, it's very finite. It's a matter of an inch or two. That, I think that's Jeff right there. Yeah, there's Jeff Fabry. So, yeah, when I did um, last year when I had to have my, sho- my shoulder redone, I did not want to miss archery season and just really took it as a personal challenge to not put my head down and – I learned to shoot. It was actually my bow arm was the one I had worked on. So I had to learn to shoot with my mouth using my opposite arm and my and my non-dominant eye, which was I'm I'm thankful for it. People always, you know, people ask me all the time if I regret this or if I would do that different. And screw that. I mean, you can't. The past is the past. I I just want to look forward on everything when I. When I messed up my shoulder, I was bummed about it. But in all fairness, I thought it was a really good challenge to look at a sport that I love from a new direction. You yeah, know? to look at the technique involved. Yep. You know, I think um, someone said it, I forget who it was, um, that one of the best ways to get good at something is to do it with your opposite hand. 
and oh. that not just doing it like say if like you you're boxing and you're working on your uh, your your straight right hand a lot of times when you do your straight left hand it actually improves your straight right hand because in learning how to do it in an awkward way what you're doing is sort of programming into your mind the critical aspects of the technique, how to throw the hips in, when to, to plant. And then when you go over to your more coordinated side, it's just like super tuned in to the critical aspects of the movement. So then when you get, you know, you throw a left hand, then you switch over to your right side and you're like, blam, it's just, it's even better. It's even faster. It's even cleaner. And I think that that probably makes sense with archery as well. I bet a lot of people would probably benefit, although it's not a traditional thing to do, probably benefit from having both a left-handed bow and a right-handed bow and learning how to shoot left-handed. Well, look at how many skateboarders get better when they learn to skate goofy. You know, if they learn to skate with the opposite foot. Oh, yeah. Back back when I was a skater, you know, you either skated like straight foot or you skated goofy. But then people didn't really switch back and forth a lot at that time unless like the freestyle skaters did back then. But then when I got away from skating and started, you know, playing football for a while and then archery, and then all of a sudden, you know, the X games happen, you start seeing guys like Tony Hawk or whatever, you realize that the whole skating world just completely went to like what the freestyle skaters were and just being able to switch either way and still perform the exact same tricks and I think any athlete that's listening and, you know, so, what's funny is sometimes I've seen you say, you know, hey, I'm talking about hunting today, but some of you listeners might get pissed, but whatever, because some people just want UFC or some people don't like to hear that. You hunting. can't ever worry about that. Yeah, but what's super important is that people need to take some of these elements and apply them to their life. And what I really believe is when I get better as an athlete is when I recognize whatever my biggest weakness is, and that's what I focus on making my strength. I call it selective cycling. I work on this with a lot of my students. I'll literally take the one thing that they do the worst, and that's all I want them to do for almost a month because a lot of psychology has shown that if you have a negative habit, it normally takes about 21 days to recreate a positive habit, right? So you have to be able to take your weakness and mentally be tough enough as an athlete to be willing to make that your strength. And I've had several things in my career that were my weakness that are now my strongest aspect. Field archery was my biggest weakness. Now it's my biggest strength. What is the difference between field archery? Well, it's not on flat ground. You know, once you start changing angles and once you start having to make shots in canyons, you have to learn wind, you have to learn trajectory. You so have to field learn archery cuts. is you have like a course that you have to run and it's all outdoors in the woods. Yep. It would be outdoors. It would be, you know, the really difficult field courses are like throughout like cliffs and mountainous areas to where, you know, you have shots where they're straight up way over your shoulder where you're aiming on you know 50 degree angles and then you're you know aiming down or somewhere i've even had to aim straight down between my legs um those types of things are extremely technical you know if you had golfers that had to play in really difficult terrain obviously they have to start learning draws and fades and they have to start learning clubs that play differently in the wind it would it would be the same thing it you 
it pointed out just like when we shoot at longer distances like i mean you were you were shooting amazing at eight were we at 80 yards yeah on your rubber deer your rubber elk you call it (laughs) (laughs) i always laugh at the rubber it's but um you were shooting amazing and then you would have one shot where something wasn't right but it would show up and that's what field archery did to me it really started to open up my weaknesses and for me as an athlete i'm always so competitive that i want to know what i suck at because i think if you're really going to master something regardless of the craft you have to be so well-rounded and i mean the ufc's that way even as a spectator i'm not a i'm not like a fight specialist by any means but i I've always loved watching the UFC, and it's funny how the people who won the early UFC versus how rounded you have to be now to win, you can't afford to have a weakness. So ignoring it isn't doing you any favors. Yeah, it's a different world now, completely different world. And you also, much like we were talking about before in the UFC, you have to be able to pretty much execute from both sides. It's very rare that someone only has like a, a good right kick. You know, you have to learn how to kick with the left side too. But in jujitsu, that that exists as well. Like, there's a lot of guys that have a strong side. Like, they only like to pass to the left, or they only like to pass to the right. They only submit guys off their right arm. It's like it's real common to have a side where you're really good at it. What really uh, one thing you said that the other day when we were sitting there talking, and you were talking about setting up moves for jujitsu and how evolving it is, how it continually evolves. And all of a sudden, a new move will get invented, and you'll be practicing that. And then someone just notices, like, wait, there's a big weakness right there. Yeah. Do this. And we've kind of eliminated someone getting that move done on you. And then it's like, holy crap. Well, so how do we, how do we actually combat that? Right. It's just a continual chess game. Yeah, it really is. And the the body can move in so many different ways. It's one of the more interesting aspects of jiu-jitsu is there are so many different ways the body can move. So when two people are engaging each other, there's the, the possibilities of attacks and counterattacks are like near infinite. It's a it's it's a spectacular example of like an extreme discipline and something that becomes just for a lot of people becomes a massive massive obsession. You see the Anthony Bourdain thing that he won a jiu-jitsu tournament? Uh-uh. Anthony Bourdain starts jiu-jitsu at 58 years old, okay? He uh, was, I think he had quit smoking. He wasn't smoking anymore because he stopped smoking when his daughter was born, I think. But still like, still was hitting the booze, you know, still wasn't eating healthy. He was on statins for his uh, blood pressure or cholesterol, I guess. He just, you know, just wasn't healthy. Yeah. Gets into jiu-jitsu because of his wife. His wife is a, a maniac. She loves jiu-jitsu. Gets into it, and now he's obsessed. Trains every day, often twice a day, and he just won a jiu-jitsu tournament. Has a blue belt at, what is he, 59 or something like that? Fucking incredible. 59-year-old awesome. Anthony Bourdain took home the gold at his first jiu-jitsu tournament. I mean, get the fuck out of here. That's to awesome. Me, as someone who loves jiu-jitsu, I'm just blown away. I'm, I'm blown away. I just love seeing... A guy like him who is a madman at so many different things and also a guy who's an artist and he his art being culinary being a chef I know I learned from watching his show that that's an art form I didn't really consider it before I watched um, no reservations his old show 
I watched him interact with all these cooks, and like a light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, cooking's an art. Like, oh, these heck guys, yeah. I never thought of it that way. I thought of it as like, oh, that guy knows how to cook. This guy makes some good this, and that guy cooks some good that. But I didn't think of it in the same way I look at like a, maybe a guy who's an amazing sculptor. I didn't think about it that way. And then I realized really? that when I watched his show, I was like, yeah, really, I never did. I was just thought, oh, this guy's a good kick. You know, this guy knows how to make uh, sausages, or this guy's really good at lasagna or something. You know, it didn't, d- didn't, it didn't seem like an art. So seeing him, a guy who highlighted that there is an art in cooking food, then um, become obsessed with this art of jujitsu, which I think in a lot of ways, like we were saying about um, arch- archery, that there's parallels. I mean, people think of kendo, which is a Japanese sword fighting art. That's unquestionably a martial art. Well, then so is archery. Yep. I mean, if kendo is a martial art, so is archery, 100%. Because archery involves a weapon. involves, But it's so much more than that, man. It's so much more than that. It's some weird, crazy, moving meditation that I feel like when it goes well, like yesterday when we shot really well, we shot like tight groups at 80 yards. Well, after it's over, like physically you feel better. Mm. You feel like charged up. You feel elevated. You feel better than if you did nothing. Like there's like if you could take a drug that makes you feel the way you feel when you hit a perfect X at 80 yards. Like that. Ah, like you would take that drug all day. Oh yeah. People, if that was a cigarette, I'm on it. I'm yeah, on it right we, now. We would be <laughs> freaking high on bullseye. High on get, bullseye. You didn't get any? <laughs> I've been pounding. I've been pounding that crap all morning, man. I'm lit it's, up right now. My skin's tingly. Yeah, it's it's a very strange, I guess, discipline. A martial art, a discipline. But I think almost labeling these things in any other way than just calling them what they, they mean. That is just it is archery. You know, when you put them in categories, when you categorize things as this is a sport or this is a hobby or this is a – it almost trivializes the the benefits, the positive benefits of it. It's funny that you say that because now I know I could never pull you away because I love as an athlete to step away with perfection. And you would shoot a group that was like perfect and I knew that we were close to being done for the day and I'd be like – all right, let's end on that. And you're like, no way, dude, I'm doing another one. But then if the, but then if you make one negative shot in that group, you were pissed again, which I can understand too because I'm, I'm so competitive that way. But I also love that feeling that you're talking about. It's awesome to, sometimes to have that, and it's important. And that's what I was trying to like work with you on is it doesn't get better than what you just did. You're on a high Let's. Right. I want you to like step away, thinking about your trip all night. So tomorrow, you know, you visualize it long enough. I'm the way I think is tomorrow. You're more likely to be able to duplicate. I don't like to go. I don't ever like to go to bed on a negative, mm. right? So that's actually what I was trying to do, but. <laughs> you know, we're not good enough friends where I can be like, listen, give, give me your – well, I don't know. I guess I did take some stuff away from you, so I, pro- I probably could Some have. of the releases that I was using, he won't let me use. I know. It, but it's, I've it, hit them in is, your house. Well, this is very geeky stuff. So for people that are listening to this, they, they don't understand. But 
because there's so many different aspects of archery, there's where you're standing, what your posture is, how you're, how you're focusing, what you're looking at, what you're concentrating on. Because of that, there's, there's a tendency to anticipate the shot and it becomes sort of overwhelming because you're managing all these different things. So what a lot of people try to concentrate now in the world of archery is getting what you call a surprise shot. Meaning that this is just for the people at home, obviously not for you. Meaning that when you pull back, the the thing that you're concentrating on is just focusing on the target. All of your technique, as far as keeping the bow balanced and level, and keeping it onto all that stuff, is something you've already worked on. All you're working on now is pulling through the shot. So you don't think about executing the shot like ready go. And when you think of that ready go, that pressing that button you have a tendency or a possibility of punching it, of hitting it wrong, of tweaking and twisting. And we talked about that today because it's in a lot of ways, it's like a fight in that when a fighter trains for a fight, you're training for something that is going to be a moment that's like months away from now. So all of this work and effort then comes to fruition in this one moment. Fighter number one, are you ready? Fighter number two, are you ready? Fight! Holy shit, here it is, it's happening! <laughs> but at least in a fight, you're, you know, you've got a few rounds, you can kind of settle in after the first minute or so, you can relax and get into the groove of everything. In archery, oftentimes, that all that training and preparation, whether it's for a tournament or even more critically, if you're hunting, it comes down to that one moment. And that moment sometimes can be completely overwhelming because that moment, although your practice has been constant and diligent, that moment is entirely alien. This moment didn't exist during any of the practice. There was never the elevated heart rate. There's never the freak out. There's never the massive consequences if you make an error. Yep. Everything has to be in place. And those, those things are what make a discipline so rewarding when you actually pull it off. All those things, like knowing that there's so many different factors involved and then this alien moment. So those factors involved, all the discipline factors, you have to drill them into a point where they become a part of you. They become like ingrained in your genetics. They, they become a part of your DNA. So that in that one insane heart-pounding moment, you can execute it flawlessly. And the best way to do it, which I'm learning from you, is by figuring out how to do it with a surprise shot. So that way you take out that the anticipation aspect of it. Yeah, it's, it, the less you think about it, the more likely it is for things to happen. You know, you you have to be so focused on the process that the prize happens without your expectation. Mm. The really interesting part about what I've learned as a competitive archer is it's the fastest buzzkill of any sport I've ever had. And what I mean by that is there's times where you're standing on the line you realize, okay, archer number one, one arrow. Archer number two, one arrow. Closest to center decides a gold medal match. You literally let go, and you're, you know, you're sitting there, you know, shitting pickles. Your heart rate's beating out your neck. You know, you're trying not to. I actually had this. I've had this feeling go both ways, but you let that arrow go, and you you have so much adrenaline that you. You can barely manage it. 
And then you you shoot and you see the shadow of that arrow hit out like out of the gold to where you know you lost, and it's instantly gone. You you have you're not nervous, you're not like sweating or shaking. You just knew you blew it, and it, it's like wiped so fast. It's really really strange that the release of one product, you know of of art form can just, you instantly know that you screwed up and, you know, and I've been that way as a hunter too, where you get nervous and all of a sudden that shot happens. And then you almost can't, you know, for some people they make the shot and then they get like that. But sometimes you make that shot and it's amazing how fast it's just gone. And it's such a rewarding thing when you can take you know that ball of just emotion and just say I got this and you freaking clamp down on it and then you see that arrow go into the gold and it's just like it's such a reward like for me that's what I think for you and your mentality and me and mine you get so much reward for that that for me, I never really worried about a. Tr- I never worry about a trophy or a medal or you know for that matter. The checks never really mattered either. They, when I was younger, I needed them, but you know I've just came to the realization that you know every trophy I have at home is tarnished. You know they need cleaning. You know they just wilt away. But what imprints I have in my mind of moments. Like, that's what pulls me through as a person. And it's positive aura that I can reflect on. You know, I know that what's satisfying to me, and I feel so content with life, is these small little goals and accomplishments that I've had where I've controlled myself, not the situation. I was in a gold medal match in Poland, and they had the the gold medal match in this square like in the square of the main town you were shooting from the from the beach into the main square of the town and our match was first and i was the first archer so i stepped up we were in a team round and there was so many people i raised my bow i pulled back i was going into my shot and as i'm looking through my scope at the target about four people's heads come like looking in like this because there were people lined all the way down and this is 70 meters so everyone's evidently was shuffling to try to get to see the archer not realizing like okay there's an arrow going over your head so i'm going from like mentally having a sight picture that i'm not nervous about to all of a sudden thinking if i shoot someone in the face i don't want to spend the rest of my life in a poland polish prison and I so remember didn't like have someone like keep cleaning the line, getting the people to back no, up. No, it was just like they didn't. I don't think they really thought that people were going to come in. And I remember I drew back and I was so, st- I mean, you've seen me shoot in my element. It's very smooth. So then all of a sudden there was like my front arm was like, tr- you know, I got into that tremor mode. Like, you know what you have when you, when the anxiety sets in. And I remember I shot. And they're like, you know, they called 10. And I came off the line and my other, my teammate that was with me goes, what the hell, dude? 
why are you shaking so bad? And he's like, what the hell, dude? You almost missed. What's up with you? Like, as we're passing one another, and I go, you'll see. <laughs> and he freaking pulls back, and he goes, what the F? <laughs> So that next round, I'm like, get freaking people out of the way. Like, I had people's faces in my scope. That's a YouTube video waiting to happen. Somebody catching one to the temple, (laughs) leaning into the path. That's just so ridiculous. You don't want one to the temple. And if anybody doesn't, if you don't know, like when you're looking through a sight of a um, uh, an archer and a bow. Archery sites are very small, so you're you're looking at a very narrow window. So for these people to actually be in your sight, they had to be extremely close to the path of the arrow. It's a one. Well, the arrow was arcing over their melon, but if <laughs> their Jesus head, because <laughs> they were between me and the target. That's so, so crazy, though. It was very crazy. That's yeah. so dumb. Yeah, it, I was like, "What is if up they with this?" Did what I did at the pool today. Doink. <laughs> Forget to <laughs> well, have the safety on. How easy is that? Yeah. It's easy. When you're concentrating all the other things, I mean, it, it weirds me out. I've been at pra- I've been at places where I'm practicing, and you're like shooting, and then someone else is at this club, and you like go down to pull your arrow, and then all of a sudden you're like sitting there like pulling your arrows, and it's like, and you're like, uh, yo, what's up? Oh god. Oh, well, I'm just saying, I'm aiming at that other target. It's like, okay, well, yeah, you know how many Joe Rogan pool shots I've seen in my <laughs> in my day. <laughs> want to be on the receiving end of that. It certainly can happen. You know, what you've got set up is is really cool, that giant long range at your house. So you could practice like in your yard like that. Like there's a video that you put up. John set up my bow. Um, I got this bow from Hoyt and John set it up perfect. And he took these crazy shots. And one of them he took was 122 yards. Yep. And um, like to, to be able to do that and to have like this big open space like that in your yard, it's got to be fucking awesome. It's way cool. Yeah, actually, um, when we bought my house, my wife Sharon, she knew that we wanted to move out to a farm because we're at, when I before I moved to Iowa, so I could get more deer tags. You laugh about that. It's hilarious. We'll talk about Who the that. fuck moves to a state? <laughs> So they can get more deer tags. You can get an extra deer tag. Who doesn't? <laughs> I'll guarantee you right now, if Cam Haynes could get two elk tags if he crossed the state line, I'll guarantee you he would do it. Oh, he loves Oregon. He travels a lot anyway. Well, he might. See, I get three buck tags, actually. So yeah, I bet see, you three. You have a different situation, him. though. Like uh, whitetail hunting in Iowa is just so different. And plus, it's. it's for folks who aren't aware, it, it's like a tradition. It's a it's an Americana thing. Like whitetail hunting is probably the biggest hunting pastime in America. More people hunt whitetails. More people spend more time hunting whitetails than anything. And it's also like probably some of the best meat you're ever going to eat in your life. Oh yeah, I've been crushing mine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I love. That's why I was so surprised when you said you don't you didn't see like cooking as an art. I wow, actually yeah. when when I go someplace nice, I I take pictures of my food because to me I see it that way. And actually, I cooked some backstraps the other night, and you know I cooked some backstraps. I like you know cook some vegetables in like a coconut oil or something, and then you know I like slice through that tenderloin and like kind of folded them all down and then like stacked my little half strap up and kind of leaned them against there and I was just like looking at it like why would people not want to do this 
Like, why would people not want to be able to do this for themselves? To make a nice meal. Yeah, yeah. To make a nice meal. And obviously it's something that is a reward of hard work and dedication that I've put in through the year. You know, my saying, one saying that I made on my TV show during the first few seasons is um, I'm in target archer to become a better hunter, and I'm a better hunter because I'm a target archer. I got into professional archery 100% because I wanted to be more proficient and ethical knowing that I was a bow hunter. And I kind of had the, it was actually the same type of feeling. I was, I was only 10, but it, or I mean, when I started competing, I started hunting when I was 10. So there was like six or seven years there where I wasn't competing. But I remember having one hunt where I felt so much anxiety and I like blew a shot and I just completely missed and I couldn't explain why. And it was at that moment that I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I need to be able to be ethical at it. So at at that point, I was kind of looking for a way to become better. And I was actually, it was right before I was supposed to leave for my first football camps or college, I was driving down a road and there was a sign on the road that said um, 3D archery shoot. And it was just an arrow pointing down. And I pulled in, I had like my hunting bow in the back of my truck, you know, kind of drive in and I see all these people like shooting on this practice range and then I see like groups of four going into this course to like shoot and it was all foam animal targets with scoring rings on them and you step up to the line you look at the target you try to figure out how far it is without having a range finder and then you make a shot and depending on you know all the scoring is within the ethical kill zone of an animal so after, I think, I think it was 15 targets. It was a 40-target course. After 15 targets, I didn't have a single arrow left in my quiver. I would lost all of them. <laughs> and it was like a wake-up call. It was the first time that I had ever felt defeated at something. It was the first time that I had a very clear wake-up call of, maybe you're not good enough to be doing this, you know. And for me, that was a trigger. As a competitor, I think the standout athletes in any sport are the ones that take those moments very personal and change a direction to make it their best or either realize I'm either going to be good at this or I need to find something else to be good at, you know, to focus all your energy to. And one thing led to another. I went to an archery shop where I saw a lot of guys with like shirts on that said like the name of a shop. So I knew they were like kind of local shooters for representing this store. So the next day I was in that store and I said, Hey, I want to get better. I know a lot of guys here were shooting and a lot of those guys were in the range. And I just started asking questions. A lot of people didn't want to help, which is why I really want to help the archery world. It's my way of giving back because there were people that didn't want to help me. But then I remember a guy came in and said, are my arrows done? And the guy behind the counter said, let me check in the back. And he kind of walked past me and he goes, come here, kid. And because I had hung out in that store for about four days, just kind of watching and looking around. I didn't really have any, you know, importance. So he takes me in the back room and he says, 
you got to build these guys arrows for me because I forgot to do them. And I said, I don't know how to build arrows. And he goes, okay, you take this feather, you put in this clamp, put glue right down this feather like this, put the arrow in this jig, you push down on it. Then you turn the wheel, go to the next arrow. After you get to the end, take the clamp off, put another feather in, you know, and he literally gave me the thing. So I was in there like trying to figure out how to do this. And you didn't even work there? No, I was there like, <laughs> like literally stalking people in the range. I was like the weird guy in the corner with like the hunting bow that was probably my dad's hand-me-down. I'm like stalking all the shooters. And about an hour later, I came out with, you know, this guy's arrows that he probably paid a hundred bucks for. And some like snot-nosed kid that did, had never even built them, built them for the guy. And so he goes, all right, good job. And he goes, here, now go do these. And two weeks later, I remember telling my dad, hey, I think I'm going to, um, I'm not going to do that, the football thing. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, I, I got offered a job at this archery shop. I'm going to do it. And my dad's like, so you're not going to play college football and get a, get a, um, an education. You're going to work in an archery shop. He goes, what's this archery shop paying? I said, four ten an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, – my dad's been so good. My Both my parents have been so supportive on everything in life, but that was the one time where he looked me in the face and just said, this is a really stupid decision. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, I mean, you know, it's – I just think it's a great story because it shows that if someone's willing to commit to a dream, then as long as you're able to put in the work and stay focused on it, there's so many people that make businesses out of dreams or, you know, careers out of sports that you would never even consider. Well, just think of that story. Now you're traveling all over the world, coaching international teams and archery. I mean, it's it's a crazy story if you really stop and think about it. It's really weird. <clears throat> you know, I have some very I have some friends that are very successful according to the business world. And there's times where I'm with those people and then they're introducing me to like a senator or a governor and then they're like well John, you know, it's like hey, this is my personal friend John. And I'm, you know, with the president of a university or something. And they're like, so, John, what do you do? And it's one of these, you want to be able to say, oh, I have an MBA. Or, right. you know, I'm, yeah, I do um, rocket science stuff. <laughs> but it's like, uh, I'm an archer. Yeah, I shoot a bow for a living. And they're just like, really? I'm a slingshot master. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then you start, you know, you start explaining what you're actually doing. And you realize this is a... It's a really big world, and it's there's such great people there. You know, I have, I liter. It's really nice to be able to say I don't have any regrets in life because I'm in an industry that I love. I'm doing something that I really, really love, and there's such good people around it. And all you have to do is get up every morning when the alarm goes off. Mine goes off pretty early, and then just put in the work and you know i just think it's so cool to know that there's opportunity like that in but there's this world. a different pa a path that maybe perhaps other people hadn't considered oh yeah yeah and just you know it's such a great country to live in too here in the states because you can take something that no one really might not believe in but yourself and if you apply the work to it 
you can make it happen. And in traveling through all the different parts of the world that I've traveled, I've gone to places where you just, you know, you really wish you could give some of those people a chance because you can tell that they have such heart and such desire, but they don't have opportunity. And that's sad. Like to me, that's, that's really sad that there's not opportunity everywhere. And then you come here and you see someone that has potential or opportunity, but they're lazy and they won't put in the work. Yeah, they don't have the desperation. They don't have the desire. They don't have the drive. They don't, they don't, you know, I think a lot of times for some people when they're young, it's not enforced early on that when you work hard at something, it's really rewarding when it's over and it's difficult to work hard at something. It's difficult to get your ass out of bed. It's difficult to force yourself to get up off the couch. It's difficult to, but once you do it, it's always good. It always feels good. And even if you do something and it doesn't work out well, like uh, even if you you're practicing archery and the shots don't go well, it's still it, you're involved in the discipline and it's giving you something to concentrate on, and that'll translate that energy and momentum will translate to the rest of your life. You're working to improve at something, whether it's archery or jujitsu or anything. When you're working to improve improve on it, I firmly believe that that motivation and that momentum of improvement applies to the rest of your life, and it's one of the things that people love about any particular discipline is the the aspects of it and the qualities of it that sort of transfer onto your everyday life. You know, it's weird because until you and I communicated some on the phone, when I worked for an archery company and I was just a sales guy making calls, I never got to see faces. All I ever heard was voices. So voices for me are always triggers because for 10 years I was just making calls. When you and I first talked on the phone and I like heard your voice directly like from my device I actually realized I haven't even told you this but I when I work out or when I shoot and a lot of times when I'm just working in my building I've comprised like about five hours of a mp3 that's nothing but motivational sayings that i've heard someone say whether it's (laughs) and i that's all i play it's my ambient sound and you were on there twice about just almost like what you just talked about just a positive it, it was just a positive rant that you had about all people have to do is make a step in a direction and you might, you know, you might look in the mirror one time and you don't like what's there, but you know, you have the opportunity to turn around and go a different way. And one thing that I really try to drive to people, cause there's times you talk to someone and you know that they're down in the dumps, you know, and you, one thing I tell people is, you know, motivation gets you going. Commitment keeps you going. You know, it's it's no different than the New Year's resolution. I freaking hate that. I hate if there's any time uh, I don't want to go to the gym, it's two weeks after New Year's because it's like this swarm of people. And all to me, there's people in there were like, you know what? Good for them. You know, they're they're not in shape. Good for them to come here. But then it's so disappointing when it's like two days they're gone well it's so common too yep yep 
And you know, if you're if you're at that stage and you're at the point where you're like, you know what, I want to change myself physically. It's funny how many people won't even It's funny how many people are going to the gym to work out, but they'll circle the gym parking lot like 10 times because they, so they want the, they want the first row to open <laughs> up. Yeah. Park as far away from the front door as you can and warm up by walking in. Skip. Yeah, skip to the loo. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people need a life coach. I think this is what I'm the, the conclusion. One of the Get conclusions that I'm coming to in life is that um, people need to either find a way to motivate themselves through all the different stuff that's available online. I mean, there's a million different websites and Instagram pages and lots of YouTube videos that show some motivation, and they can help you. Um, but we human beings learn from each other and i think most of the cultures in the past not trying to glorify the past and say they had it nailed and we don't but most of them were in tighter knit groups and they emulated the behavior and the patterns of the successful members of that group the leaders of that tribe that's where traditions uh, came from that's where skills were passed on and that's where ethics and that's where certain philosophies were passed down from generation to generation these were the most beneficial to the community as a whole to the individual to the the culture whatever the whatever it is this world that we're living in today we're almost in a lot of ways like you were saying people with so much opportunity but too lazy we're almost, in a lot of ways, just lacking in uh, a pattern, a correct pattern, and a coach or, or a mentor or a person who is ahead of you but honest, like ahead of you as far as like maybe been alive longer or maybe had more experiences, but very honest about the difference between you and them. Because a lot of people think that you, you see something. Like we were talking about today, this is a ridiculous analogy, but... When um, I was on MTV, we were talking about downtown Julie Brown. <laughs> yeah, because I know? was singing on the line. <laughs> and I remember thinking, while you were saying that, like, you, you go, downtown Julie Brown was probably on MTV back when you were on yeah, MTV. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, but I was a peon. Like, she wouldn't know who I was. I was on one of, you know, X amount of comedians on the MTV half-hour comedy hour. Like, I couldn't probably couldn't even talk to her or say hi to her. And then I remember thinking, like... I put myself in that state of mind that I had back when I was 23 or whatever I was when I was on that show and I felt like insignificant and like, whoa, that's downtown Julie Brown. And then I realized like now that that's nonsense. Like now I know that's nonsense. But in my head, thinking about that time, I felt like I did when I was 23. That like Yeah, downtown I could see it. You, you know said I mean? it. That was yeah. your first reply. You're like, yeah, but I was just a peon then. And then all of a sudden, I think once you thought about for a few seconds, you're like, you know what? F that. Well, it's so, well, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. But I did think that way back then. I think a lot of other people think that way now. You know, and whether it's uh, someone who's an aspiring archer that looks at your accomplishments and then looks at you back when you were this stalker kid hanging around a bow shop yeah. in comparison to how they are. And I think that's that's a big that's a big help to people to hear a story like that and to know that now you travel all over the world and you coach international teams and to to see someone admit that I think is like very important and to see someone discuss that I think is very important to a lot of us because we don't 
really most people don't have fucking mentors and most people aren't even involved in like a discipline that tests them in that manner we're involved a lot of people are involved in education right you go through high school you go to college you get a degree you're studying you're practicing but how much of that what you're doing has the aspects of the obsession with a discipline like archery or like jujitsu or think something along those lines you're not getting the same intensity and focus you're reluctant to do the work you're doing it because you have to because you got to get a degree because you got to get a job because you don't want to be a loser and so you're pursuing these things with a lack of passion and then you enter into the workforce hopefully you're doing what you love most of the time people are not most of the time people are doing what they think is a good job that they can get by with and so they're committed to this path of not being excited not being obsessed and then not challenging themselves and not rising above and not gathering up some of the possible lessons that you can and it, it could be anything it could be anything if you want to make knives if you love making jackets if you like painting it could it doesn't there's no one particular thing that it should be for you you just have to find out whatever starts that spark in you for you it was archery for me it was stand-up comedy you know or martial arts you know it could be it could really be anything but I think we need things like that if people don't have things like that if they just work and then they go home and they watch TV and they go work and they go home and they watch TV you're not you're not fucking living life at level 10 it's yeah. just you're not going to hit it you're never going to feel that le- and I'm not saying you're going to be at level 10 every day but there's going to be s- some moments like when you were talking about you know being on the line you know w- two archers this is the for one shot for the gold medal and you're like ah! yep that that feeling those that's, those feelings are integral to being a human being the feelings of being challenged and of learning what you're capable of and what you're not capable of through those challenges. Absolutely. And the thing is, too, you have to be able, when you've made that decision, the next thing that you should come to terms with is say, you know what, I'm going to push myself further than I've ever pushed myself. And I know dang good and well there is going to be a block. There's going to be resistance. I heard in a podcast from you long ago, you talked about the book um, The War of Art. Yeah. I bought it. Stephen Pressfield. Yep, I bought it. So, you know, it talks about resistance. And actually, you know, with you learning this new release for your archery, I told you before you even made your first shot, there is going to be a point where you're not going to like this. And you need to know right now that we're going to push through it. So a lot of times when people make that determination and that decision in life of, you know what, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to get ready. You need to also think, you know what, there's going to be, I'm going to have a voice in my head that's going to tell me this is too hard and I'm going to have a point of resistance. But I'm telling myself right now when I get that, that's my opportunity to go further than I've ever had in the past. I know right now that when I get to that, I am pushing through it. If you're only focused on one particular goal and not seeing the obvious distractions or things that are going to that you know are going to be in that path and mentally build build up yourself to know when I get to that resistance I'm driving through you know I listened to that podcast with Steve-O and he talked about he knew he was ready to beat his habits and when he was in there and they're like telling him that he should be going he's like no I want like 
he probably knew deep down inside that if he left, he was that was it was going to be an opportunity for him to fail. So he had already made up his mind that he was going through that. And so many people in life just don't push that one time and then they never really see how far they can go. Mm. You know, I heard like um, one time I heard Les Brown say, um, you know, would you rather go through life um, aiming too high and miss or aiming too low and hit? I mean, I would rather aim high and fall short and still be further ahead than aiming too low and hitting exactly a low goal. You know, I think you have to be willing to fail and get good at it. I lost way more tournaments than I've ever won. And some of the people that, like, question why I'm at where I'm at in archery, they're like, well, he never won that much. You know what? I'm probably lost more than anybody that's good. But I dang sure know that it made me a better person. And when I lost, I was at the tournament the next week making sure that I worked on whatever it was that caused me to lose. You know, I think I remember a guy one time saying, you know, you haven't really figured out how to win yet. But and that's critical for an athlete. Well, it's Some, critical that that po- moment that happens in any competition where you're worried about the event, you're worried about the outcome, and that worry can overwhelm your abilities. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And when you get to that point, you have to be willing to dig deep down and say, you know what? This is what I've worked for. I knew this was coming. Mm. I, you know, if it if there wasn't nervousness and the possibility of defeat or victory, then there probably wouldn't be any sense of inner accomplishment to it. You've literally done everything you can to get to that moment. That's a defining moment. So which way are you going to go? You know, then you have a decision to make. And for me, my victories were so much sweeter because I had failed a lot before that. And it got to the point where I remember being in a match one time and I had taken like several second thirds leading up to that. And I remember getting there and I just, I closed my eyes on that last arrow and I just, I'm like, I'm freaking sick of blowing it. Screw that. I'm not doing it again. I'm going to make a good shot. This I sounds visual- like a Rocky movie. <laughs> yeah. We're like, da-da-da. Yeah, keep Ta-da-da. going. And then so I just closed my eyes <laughs> <laughs> and, <sighs> and made the shot. And then when I made it, the victory seemed so much sweeter because I had pushed through adversity to get there. You know, I think that's that's what I love about archery is that, it, you know, one day you're so good and then the next day – you know, you see flaws and you see mistakes. What's well, a long rabbit hole too? That's the the weirdest thing about archery. You wouldn't think it's such a long rabbit hole. There's so much to learn and so many different places to go. And there's so many people that you're you watch TV. I've t- I've taken to watch. I, I watch hunting shows much to the chagrin of my family. I think it's hilarious. But some of them are so bad. There's su- there's such bad production. Like if you want to learn bad television, like say if you're a person out there that's aspiring <laughs> to do a TV show, there's awesome. some there's some hunting shows out there that look like they were made by blind people that were drunk, <laughs> and the animals like they 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 shoot especially the archery shows they fucking miss more than they hit them, 
I mean, if someone from like, if someone wanted to make a, an argument against the ethical use of archery for hunting, well, all they need to do where to go. is watch <laughs> some of those fucking shows. <laughs> but it's just, I think it's, you know, it's a difficult thing to do, and some people kind of half-ass it. And some of those people that do half-ass it, they're on television. Well, and that brings up a really good point because I know a lot of people that probably are listening that either know myself or know that you're a hunting advocate and a conservationist like myself. We owe it to ourselves as an art, you know, as a hunting community to realize that there's a big opposition pushing back and we have a responsibility to represent ourselves ethically and also appreciate other people's feelings and, you know, appreciate that there are people that might not like it. And you really have an opportunity to either do something that's going to really piss them off, or if you're going to maybe do something to where it'll at least let them keep an open mind. Now, well, the best way to do that, I think, is have conversations about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many Facebook messages and Twitter messages I've gotten from people that have told me that they had a particular view, a negative view about hunting, until they listened to, like, maybe a podcast with Steve Rinella or Cameron Haynes or Jim Shockey. Yep. And they realized, like, oh, th- this is not what I think it is. Not only is it not what I think it is, you must do something to control these animal populations. And the one thing, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, to anybody that thinks there's no reason to ever kill wild animals, I have two words for you. Feral pigs. You can't, you better do something, because if you don't do something, they will fucking overwhelm the earth. Well, what about people, man? People (laughs) are overwhelming the earth too, man. Yeah, I like people. You can have sex with them, you can talk to them, you can go to the movies with them, they make cars. I'm a big fan of people. Except people that make parking lots. Yeah, they're making some narrow parking lots in California. Okay, somewhere in the the last 10 years, whoever... (laughs) was working for like American and United Airlines that made Economy Plus and then took the big dump on the regular economy seats, fi- someone finally fired those people and then they started designing parking lots. Because <laughs> freaking you can't park your junk in anything anymore. They never have an obvious way to like get to the strip mall that's right next door. They make you like exit the freaking Pac-Man exit where like you have to go around all the ghosts and shit to like finally get to the one way to get out and then turn and go down to get into the next one. Well, they definitely are trying to shove too many spots in places. Like uh, I was somewhere uh, recently, oh, Santa Barbara, where it's real nice, but there's not that many people. And one of the things that I noticed when I was there, I was like, look how big the parking spots are. They're nice and wide because they're not overwhelmed by the same amount of people. There's Amen. only like 100,000 people in all of Santa Barbara. It's like an easier way to, to get around down there. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's... Fuck yeah, man. There's too many goddamn people. Yeah, I don't want to Jamie, we're moving. Car. You ready to move? Yeah. Jamie's thumbs up from Jamie. What's we're that? We're moving. Santa Barbara. Fuck it. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> do, you need gonna... a, do you need a person to like... You need a full-time range manager. <laughs> they need to build a range. That's the next step. If I get deeper and deeper with this, I'm going to open up an archery shop. I think so, for sure. I think uh, an archery school would be the way to go, honestly. I really think that there are a lot of different martial arts schools, and I've been involved in a bunch of them. And I think that uh, teaching martial arts is, is gigantic. But one of the things that's a problem with archery, and most particularly with bow hunting, is the learning curve is extremely steep and it's not obvious at all as to where to start. 
The, yep. the learning ter- curve to start archery is just go to an archery store, go to a shop. But I mean, I've had experience with shops that didn't know what they were doing. And I went there and I got bad advice from them. And I, I saw people that really didn't exactly know what they were doing. And they were telling me, oh, you don't need that. Oh, you don't need this. And there's, there's so many people out there that probably would be interested in in archery. And I know there's a lot of people that are interested in hunting as well. They just don't know where to start. And I think having like classes in a, uh, like a shop is a, probably a really good idea and probably something I'm going to get into in the future. Well, I want to see that. Yeah, no, I would I'm love coming to your really grand want opening. to. But I'm I would have to, to your grand opening. All right, man, you're in. But I would have to most certainly have people that were there that were really good that could teach classes and teach people how to do it. You know, like we were showing you were showing me the video of your son hunting alligators. Yep. And I said it right as you were saying. I was like, look at his form. Like the, your kid is like his perfect form, like a world champion archer. Yep. Like the way he's got his his posture, the he way he released. Be. And when, you know, when we were, we were watching that, I was thinking, well, here's a kid that's learned from the beginning how to do it correctly. So when you look at him as opposed to that picture that you sent me of the archer that's on television that has a, uh, an arrow that he's pulling back, his string is deep tucked into his face, where for sure, when you're pulling your string back and it's digging into your face, the, the pressure of your face on that string is going to change the path of the arrow. You're never supposed to dig it into your face like yep. this guy has it. Then you look down, his arrow is not even attached to the string. It's like <laughs> hanging off, and he doesn't even know it. It is the most, and this guy's on television, and that fucking picture was used for an ad. Yeah. The, yeah. the picture was on an ad, which means they took the picture, somebody looked at it, and they were so careless that they went, yep, good enough. <laughs> Keep going. We got it. Nailed it. And they took that and they put it on fucking television or they put it in a magazine or what have you. But when you see someone who started from the beginning, like your son, with perfect form, how old was he in that? Like 10? Yeah, he started when he was nine. So in that picture with that video with the alligator. He was was 10. 10. When you see that, as opposed to someone who's been doing it wrong their whole life, you realize the importance of original technique, like having it like your original lessons, the first lessons you get. Imprinting correctly. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, and that's a big part of what I'm doing. Can I plug the? Fuck yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, your your show, which yeah. is called Knock On TV, it's yep. on uh, sport, but not Sportsman's Channel. Well, yeah, it's on the Sportsman's Channel, and they're yep. both by, owned by the same people now. Yeah, right? yeah. The Outdoor yep. Channel and the Sportsman's Channel are both owned by the same people. And now. then you know the YouTube site, Knock On Archery. There's a lot of if you go through there, and if you're not a hunter, then move past that because there's a lot of how-to stuff, and that's the direction that I'm really going to be going. The whole focus on this brand, um, knock on, which I think I, ha- I think I have a hat on. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it was a brand intended for people that aren't really necessarily wanting to say I'm a hunter, but I'm an archer, and so much of what this show is geared around and it took a long time for me to convince the network for me to dedicate you know right now i have three segments that are how to be better with your form in the dead center segment then the field recon segment is how to be better in the field as a hunter you know some type of a technique and then i have the third segment called knocked and ready to rock which last year was literally how to buy a bow and completely set up the bow to start to finish throughout the whole episode. And there's episodes. a video of that. Oh, yeah. It's over an hour long. Yep. It's on YouTube, which is a very difficult, time-consuming, and involved process. Yep. 
And then this year, the Knocked and Ready to Rock segment is all about like learning to build your own arrows. But as I move forward through the seasons and through the, you know, through the YouTube channel, I'm going to continue to try to work on building all these fundamentals to become a good shooter. And Harry and my wife, they both started out with no experience at all. And it's funny how if you show the basic fundamentals and you're taught right from the very beginning, how easy you can get to perfect form. It's when you go into it with like, you know, I always say women and kids are way easier to teach than guys because there's not the macho factor. You know, mm-hmm. guys are like, shit, dude, I know how to grab. Here, give me that. I'll show you how to do it. Well, they also do worry gym more class. about being a loser. Yep. Whereas people who are not worried about, man, I'm a, uh, yeah, I'm a, uh, if I fuck this up, damn, dude, I'm a loser and this guy's a winner. Like, there's a lot of people that don't like learning things because they don't want to fuck up, you know? And I think when you, you teach a, a, a woman or a, a young person, they have less ego. They don't think of themselves as being the shit yet. Oh, you yeah. Know what I mean? well, 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 women don't just, they just don't have as many ego problems as men do in that regard. Well, there's two, there's two, t- you know, I, I've, I've looked a lot into sports psychology, and I, I one the first time I talked to you, one of the things where I was really hoping you could help me with, and if anyone's listening out there that's like a sports psychologist, I actually I have a I have a big ADD problem. I'm very, but it also has been a huge part of my success as an archer because I zone things out. There's times where I've been in competitions, people come up to me and say, hey, sorry, I bumped you with the camera or whatever. And it's like, when? Because I like, I don't, like, you're so tunnel visioned on stuff. So I, You see heads in those tunnels. Yeah, the heads <laughs> kind of was a distraction. That was my Adderall. But yeah, I've, I've really wondered, you know, is, is ADD or, you know, that, is that like an asset to get in the zone faster? But yeah, we talked about that. And I, I, my, my issue is what is ADD? You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure that everyone who has ADD is really has a disorder. I you're think a lot of it, right. I think a lot of it is a style of thinking or a way of thinking, you know, right now, like my dad's a psychologist and it's amazing to me how many people will, you know, I've got friends that will, like, go to the shrink for a 30-minute session, and they're like, oh, yeah, I got some Adderall, dude. I got ADD really bad. Yeah. When I got when I got diagnosed with mine, I went for three different days and di- almost did, like, a psychological evaluation. I mean, it was, like, questioning, questioning, questioning. And I remember, like, reading through this thing that, that a tr- that a true psychologist did to diagnose what I had. And I remember one of the lines said, it was like one of the beginning lines, it's like, John has always been a fairly normal boy. He never had a problem soiling his linens or something like that. It was that like, sounds like yeah, what really you would read when like... someone became a serial killer. <laughs> John has always been a normal boy. Until we found the one hand sticking out of the dirt in the backyard, we never suspected anything. <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. But but is, AD&D, is ADD recognized 100%? Like, is it universally recognized like there is an issue with ADD? I would say so. They argue that, that up, Jamie. They argue that it's the more... The case against ADD. How about that? Google that. Yeah. Yeah, Let's give they, it a shot. They argue that there's more, there's more people coming, you know, that are saying they have ADD, and mm-hmm. I think because doctors are so quick to prescribe nowadays. But what it, what does it mean? It means attention deficit disorder. So what does exactly that mean? Well, like for me, it's sometimes 
people are talking to, maybe when I'm so zoned out on something else, I never hear it. You know, there's right. just constant distraction. There's constant distraction. If I'm tuned into you, then, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, I'll be focused on something and my wife, like, has to snap at me like a dog. See, but that, to me, is not attention deficit disorder. That's not attention deficit at all. That's extreme attention on well, one thing. Yeah, and just the, a w unwillingness to uh, engage with distractions. But it, then there's times, what's weird about it is then there's times where you're trying to focus on something and it's like every stimuli comes into play. Right. But what are those things that you're trying to focus on? Is it ever anything that you're really interested in? Or is it just some shit you have to do, like fix a pipe or, you know. Uh, well, certainly there's times where people are talking to you and you really don't want to listen to them. That's I have a feeling that's what attention deficit disorder is. People are bored as fuck. <laughs> or that is a, a, a lot of the disorder. time. Well, every, you know, there's this wide range of the way people think and the way people address situations. Like, you can even see it in your children. Like, I have um, my middle child is very outgoing and very loud and silly, and she'll talk to anybody. But my youngest child, she, if she doesn't know you, she ain't saying shit. I know You that. can say hi to her, and she's like, whatever, dude. She'll <laughs> hide behind me. I ain't talking to this guy. Like, she just has her own style of engaging with people. And they both also have their own very distinct um, likes and dislikes as far as, like, the kind of TV shows they like or the kind of toys they like or the kind of art that they do. And I just think that that same variety applies to things that people are interested in and not interested in in life. And we take these fucking kids, man, and this is a big part of the problem with education. There's a lot of different jobs out there. And the path for a guy who wants to be a professional archer versus the path for a guy who wants to be an audio engineer, these are very different paths. And they involve very different amounts of data, different, different kinds of data, different stimuli. And we take people, and especially when they're young, we make them pay attention to shit they don't give a fuck about. Yep. And I don't think it's good for them. And I think we could, like, when I was in high school, they always said, oh, he doesn't pay attention. He's got no, put something in front of me that I care about, and that's all I pay attention to. Absolutely. So it's not that I'm a fucking ne'er-do-well, but you, you make me feel like I am. Yeah. You make me feel like I'm a loser because I don't give a fuck about math yep. or, or Spanish history. Sorry, it's not ringing in my 13-year-old head. I'm thinking about tits right now. <laughs> I don't have time for Spanish history. I don't give a fuck. But you might talk to me about pirates, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, that spark gets lit, and now I'm interested. And now I'm obsessed with pirates, and I want to read books about pirates, and I want to talk about pirates. There's all sorts of different things that people get excited about and interested in. But the problem, I think, or one of the problems with formalized education and our some for some strange reason our need to diagnose certain styles of thinking and certain styles of, of, of approaching life as problematic as ADD or he's got you know he's got ADHD oh yeah. he's just he can't stop he's in a fucking classroom they're teaching nonsense he's sitting on a plastic chair he wants to run through the fucking wall uh, yeah. it's everything I could do I have a neighbor and sometimes this guy corners me okay and he'll tell me some stupid shit about his son's basketball game or some other shit and I literally want to run up a tree I just want to ah! <laughs> and I don't have ADD I'm not I'm not I don't know if ADHD I'm fucking bored man <laughs> and you're kidnapping me with this stupid goddamn conversation 
And I'm like, yeah, hey, look at the time, gotta go. So I told him, you know, if you're gonna get some time on that bench, Ah! <laughs> and that's how I felt when I was in school. I felt a lot of that in school, and I think that that's a lot of what's going on. We're all interested in different shit, and formalized education in a lot of circles and a lot of schools is just too limited for some of the kids in class. I remember Harry, his first football team, I'm thinking he was like 9 or 10, and one of the kids shows up with like a big can of Monster, and he's like drinking it. Oh, Jesus. And the – and we were trying to control the kid and i went over to the mom and i said like you know and it was every day how and old was o- this kid he was 10 oh my god yeah yeah and i remember going over and the mom said the mom goes yeah we just have such a problem control and it, it the thing is it was eight in the morning for a football game and she goes we just he just never listens i mean the doctor says he has add and i'm like you just gave him a green monster at eight yeah. in the morning he's 10 and he had like a double can of monster i'm talking the the big ones yeah and how, how much do you think he weighed uh 100 pounds jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> That's like I could a, be wrong, but that's think, more than two yeah. adult size <laughs> servings. Could be wrong, but I think I know the problem. Yeah, it might be your kids on crank. <laughs> I mean, that's crank. That's that's like extreme really, yeah. doses of caffeine yeah. and sugar. And, the sugar in those things, and you don't even know what else, really. Yeah, and you know what, man? They gotta stop selling you some shit and saying it's more than one serving. Fuck I hate you. That. You can't do that anymore. You gotta stop doing that. If it's in one package and it's like a drink. That's a fucking serving. Stop saying it's two servings. Yeah, unless it's like a a box of like something, you know, that you're going to cook. If it's a box, that's multiple servings. Right. Don't tell me this bottle of water is two freaking servings. Well, that's fine. Well, it you is. could say it. Well, you could say just that. Kidding. Does it? Is it? No. <laughs> just kidding. But that's fine because there's no there's no negative consequences right in drinking a bottle of water. It's universally agreed that an 8-ounce bottle of water or it's not going to hurt anybody. But one of those fucking monster energy drinks, or my uh, trainer had uh, a protein bar the other day. It was like a small one too, man. It was only like maybe three inches long. It was yep. a small protein bar. And uh, he goes, oh, I got to get my protein bar. I go, your candy bar? I'm fucking with him. I go, dude, you're eating candy. He goes, no, man. I go, I go how many grams of sugar in that? And he goes, nine. I go, really? I go, how many servings in each bar? He goes, no way. I go, check. Yep. And he goes, fuck, it's two. Yep. I go, that's 18 grams of sugar in that little tiny thing. That's I, a candy bar. Yeah, absolutely. I coached that with teams, actually, because when I competed, the one thing that I think was that I found really, really helpful is to be able to travel and keep yourself in your same daily routine with your rest and your diet and more importantly, your garbage intake. Because people will go to a tournament and then they'll like pop in and they'll grab like, you know, a power bar, you know, like the chocolate covered power bar. And then they go to a tournament and they're like having a <coughs> snack. And then all of a sudden, like two targets say they're like, I don't know what's up. I'm kind of like bouncing all over the place. And I'm thinking, well, you're on you drugs. Ju- you just had 40 grams of sugar. Yeah. And they're like, when? And I go, well, you just ate that um, marathon bar. You know, 19 grams of sugar per serving. Yeah, double it. You know, you just like totally had a full-blown insulin drop, you know. And you do have one too. You know, I've been on this crazy diet now for two months, and I I stepped off it the other day. I had a cheeseburger and a chocolate shake. Woo-wee! It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. But it 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 was worth something. 
It was worth something while I was eating it. It was glorious. It was a wonderful cheeseburger with blue cheese and bacon. It was very good. Well, and the chocolate shake bad. It was pretty goddamn good. And the chocolate shake, it was a chocolate malt, in fact. Pretty goddamn good. But good Lord, because I haven't been eating that way, the crash after it was over, it was devastating. Like, I could barely stay awake an hour later because my insulin level just... <laughs> my whole body was just like, what did you do? After months, two months of eating clean, <coughs> you just took a shit in your mouth. And I, I recognized that that had probably be, been a normal thing for me for most of my life. <coughs> if I had eaten um, a cheeseburger and a shake within an hour afterwards, I just was crashed. Yeah. I was just oh, yeah. done. But that's most people the way they eat all the time. They just get used to that terrible feeling. When I when I give seminars, you know, a lot of times you have a lunch break and I pay attention to the people when they hit the lunch break, I pay attention to like what some people are eating cuz you can tell a lot by a person by what they're throwing. If you've got an option of something good or something crap, there's some people that just like go right for the crap, then there's some people that go for the good stuff. As soon as like your session starts back up, and I'm sure you've done this where you give like you know, speeches or seminars after meals, there's always like four people that are like out mm -hmm. and they can't help it. Right. Cause they ate a bunch of garbage and they had this huge insulin dump and you know, they've, their body's like trying to fight off all that and then they crash. And a lot of times I'll like wake people up and I'll say, okay, I was waiting for that to happen because now is what I want to talk about the importance of nutrition during performance. Because the reason several people in here can't stay awake right now is because of what they did during their lunch break. A lot of a lot of events, sports related events that are like all day events, they have breaks. Archery always had a break at noon. I never wanted to be hungry at the break. I tried to continually pick and hydrate throughout the whole event, just like I do at home during the day, so that I wasn't starving. You see competitors that are leading the pack, and they run to the freaking concession stand, and they want to, like, pound two or three burgers because they know that they're not going to get to eat till 5 o'clock. And then all of a sudden their scores just start to peter out, and they start making mistakes. And then all of a sudden, towards the end, they come back again, and they're saying, like, yeah, I just had that freaking those several ends. I just struggled. And it's like. How do you I, think? Yeah. yeah why? At the, well, at the time, I wasn't like telling all my competitors, but I'm like, <clears throat> well, I saw that coming. Well, until you try to live clean, until you try to eat clean and you don't eat cheeseburgers and shakes, you don't understand how much of an impact it really has. Because I think people associate how they feel with just normalcy. They think that, well, this is just what happens. You know, at the end of the day, I get tired, man. I need naps. When I started trying this primal diet, the Mark Sisson diet, and I started, I brought my body into a state of ketosis. Yep. It was the first time ever that in between meals I didn't have that crash where I didn't feel terrible, where like I could go six, seven hours and not feel bad at all. Yeah. Because your body, when it hits that state, is starting to burn off the fat. And so your body has a supply of fat, so it just starts converting the fat in your body to energy. It's amazing, That's and it's a, amazing that so few people eat and live like this. Yeah, that was um, that was really interesting because the one thing I asked you was I said, 
What's really the difference between that and the Adkins, right? More fats. Right. And that was, to me, it made sense then, you know, where the Adkins, there's a lot more focus on the protein. You know, I get people that are uneducated on eating clean. You know, we look at what we, you and I just ate for lunch. I mean, we like knocked back an avocado like nothing. Some people are afraid of an avocado because they say it's fattening. I mean, talk about not knowing what's up. Yeah, they don't understand dietary fats and the importance of certain uh, amounts of of healthy fats, um, of getting the amount of oils and fats that your body needs. Healthy oils, super important. And avocado oil and avocados in general, one of the most healthy fats you can consume. Super, super good for you. You know, and getting the right amount of nutrients in your body has just such a massive effect on how the whole goddamn thing works. And again, I go back to the the mentor thing and the life coach thing, because until you have talked to someone that you trust that's that's done it and is there, you know, until you know some guy who's a competitive, you know, marathon or something like that. And he says, listen, you know, if you do this, your body will work better. You got to trust me. You got to trust me and try to clean up your diet and try to, you know, just if most people just cut out just one thing at a time they would see a big difference. I actually have a thing that I call having. Um, I've got a ton of success stories of hunters that were motivated by posts that I made with like food or, you know, they just see a post that I do and they're like, I really, I'm just tired of where I'm at as, you know, Billy Bob the bow hunter or, you know, I'm tired of where I'm, where I'm at in archery. I've never, I've been in it 10 years and I've never made progress. What do I need to do? You know, I'll get some photos of them, and a lot of times I notice that they're out of shape, and I'm like, listen, if you're shooting on a line and you look down and you can't see your feet, because you know a big part of my shot routine is mm-hmm. is the first step <clears throat> is really your feet, you know, your stance. I mean, like, imagine martial arts, you're, you know, you're trying to talk someone about their stance, they can't even see their feet. Well, it's yeah. like, okay, well, we need to address another problem as well. You know, you might not want to hear this, but we need to address this problem. And for me, when I started down that path, because I had about three years of my life where I, you know, it's funny how when it comes to like the path of an arrow or the path of life, all it takes is the smallest movement to get you going a certain direction. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you're like so far off the course and you're like, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. And and I had a point in my career where I was that way. I was like, you know, I was like, I remember I had to, I put on like a pair of 38 underwear and i was like what the hell you know i used to wear like 30 38 pants now i'm in a 38 freaking and i'm then i look at my legs because you know and i've got a pretty good story about big bird but i always like i've got big bird legs you know and i'm thinking frick that's how round my waist is as long as that freaking leg that's how big around i am so what i started doing was just having and Every time I ordered my normal meal at a restaurant, if it comes out and there's a burger, I took half the bun and I just like, and then half the fries, I freaking slid them off and I gave them to the lady and said, can you take that? And I would literally eat half the carbs that was on my plate. I just halved everything as soon as it came out. So I was in my normal routine in life. If Sharon and I went to Applebee's or whatever, and I ordered my normal little meal, if it was a carb or junk, whatever they gave me as a portion, I halved it. And I mean, just that, and then getting rid of like soda 
And all of a sudden it was just like, zoom, in a matter of months, you've just completely like changed your directional path. And, and once cut you, down the amount of calories yeah, substantially. And, and once you get to that point, you're motivated by what you're seeing. And then it's like, I'm going to have that again. Like normally I'm used to having this. I'm going to have that again. And, you know, there's times where I might feel like bread. Like I told you that. For the most part, I don't like, you know, I feel really good when I'm not eating starch or carbs. I feel way better that way. However, certain carbs are, I think, really critical for times where, you know, there's times where I'm needing to write or I'm needing to speak, and I kind of just feel fuzzy in the head. And for me, it, sometimes I think it's like your cognitive is like craving some brain food. So we should try some ketones, too. I'm going to get you some exogenous ketones for Yeah, I've been digging trying your your dietary routine it's it's good exogenous ketones have a big effect on mental function it's very very healthy for you too it's all it's not not junk not stimulants you know it's just just healthy foods you know one of the things uh, one of the ways that uh, i got to know cameron haynes is um because uh in being on a, a few hunts and going into the mountains and experiencing what it's like just to hike at high altitude uh, just really underestimated the amount of stress that it takes on your body, uh, how, how difficult it is to do. And so then I started researching fitness and uh, fitness and hunting. Like yeah. I, I'm like, there's got to be someone out there that's like really into it. And then I found Cam, who's yep. just a fitness fucking nut, oh, yeah. does ultra marathons and all that jazz. And that's how Cam and I became friends is by looking at his, his sort of style of getting ready for the mountains, like pretty much all of what he does, whether it's weight training, whether it's just running, running mountains, it's preparing him to be a better hunter. Oh, yeah. And I don't think many people that view hunting consider that. They think of hunting as being a fat guy who's drinking beer, waiting for a deer to pass by so he could shoot it in the dick. You know, I mean, that's that's what that's what, that's how a lot of people look at hunting. They look at it as a bunch of cruel assholes, or that dentist guy who goes over to Africa and shoots a lion and fucks it up. That's how a lot of people look at hunting, and that's it's it's one of the reasons why hunting has a bad rap, especially in terms of its benefit in uh, as uh, a tool for conservation. Oh like, yeah. People will say, well, it's that's that's bullshit. The only reason why people call it a, a conservation tool is because it gives them an excuse to kill animals. Yeah, most horse, of the money, most of the crap. money to preserve wetlands, to preserve wildlife habitat, most of that money is a direct result of hunting. Oh, most absolutely. Of it. Totally. That, that's a fact. It's an undeniable fact. So all these people out there that are calling themselves conservationists that never donate, and then they, they'll say something mean and rude about hunting— and even eat a cheeseburger after they say it. Like, there's a lot of fucking crazy intellectual dishonesty out there when it comes to this subject. And, in, and also in terms of what we should or shouldn't do in terms of being the stewards of the earth. Like, we were talking about, like, wild pigs. If yep. you don't think that we should do something to control the population of wild pigs, it's because you've never been around wild pigs. Yep. They have two, three litters a year. They'll have three or four babies every litter, litter, and they fucking keep going. And they got more than that. How many yeah. do they get? What is like pigs? I'm guessing seven to ten in a litter. Yeah. And how many litters a year? At least two, right? They could do two. Yeah, I think it's uh, what is it? Every three months they can chuck them out. Well, they can chuck one out in six months after being born, which is insane. Oh yeah, yeah. It's they're. I mean, it's it's amazing how one or two pigs turns into an absolute problem really fast. And even even at your house, you know, people there's people that give me slack if I, you know, I posted that video of that coyote I shot mm -hmm. and then, 
you know about the wolf thing, but people have a problem with that. And it's like, dude, we were in your yard and your wife comes out and there's like two two coyotes in the yard, like scoping out your chicken house. And then when she took the kids to school, she ends up telling us, yeah, there's a coyote running down the road with a freaking rooster hanging out of its mouth. Yeah, they're common. I mean, they're like... You have to you have to control some of that, and you I have know, to control predator populations because nothing else does. And whitetails, I'm yeah. telling you, um, Frank Zane, he was a three time Mister Olympia. Frank used to do, or he still does, he still does. But Frank and Arnold used to do archery as kind of an R and R, you know, from their bodybuilding. That was kind of their their zen, their stress relief was shooting. And um, when I went to the Arnold and competed. Uh, Frank and, and Frank and Arnold ended up coming in to have like a, an old comp, like a competition, like from the old days. So they came into the hall to like each of them shoot. Well, what Arnold didn't know was Frank was so competitive that Frank actually talked to the coordinator of the event and he called her and said, who are there any really good archers coming that can coach? So she asked around and ended up connecting Frank to me. So when Frank and I talked, I was like a big fan of him because I was a fitness guy for my stress relief. And he wanted coaching because he goes, when Arnold and I shoot together, I don't want him to think that I've practiced, but I want to freaking <laughs> beat him. So I actually like worked with him a little bit and he did end up, you know, he ended up shooting and then Frank and I became friends, and he's, you know, he's an animal lover. He's from, um, he's down from San Francisco, south of San Francisco, I think. And he never really talked negative about me when he knew that I was a hunter and stuff. But I could tell it wasn't necessarily something that he favored. But, but he I, eats meat. Well, absolutely. But he he wasn't against it. He wasn't like dead set against it. I think he just didn't. Wasn't interested in it. Right. So I pick him up at the airport. And we're driving back. And he said, so do you like hunt deer all the time? And I said, yeah, I hunt them all the time. And he's like, he's like, well, kind of how do you, you, how do you feel about it? And I said, you have to do it. And he's just like, really? And he he never said anything negative. But I remember we were three miles from my house and a freaking deer comes across the road. And we're like in my little Hyundai accent. And I freaking smoke this thing. And he's like, he's just like, holy shit like he's like you know he's never seen like a freaking animal smash the car and i'm and he's just like that was a freaking deer we just hit a deer and i said yeah dude imagine if eight hundred and fifty thousand people in the state of wisconsin weren't out hunting a year eight hundred and fifty thousand. Is that how many hunt yeah, in Wisconsin? Th- uh, yeah, between bow hunting and gun hunters. You can look it up. I was I in Wisconsin for opening season, uh, not last year, but the year before last, and the morning light is like a war just started. It's <laughs> it crazy. Is. You hear it was like remember when we used to watch like shock and awe, like when the yeah. shock and awe happened? Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like. Well, we talked about Michigan on the podcast before that in last year or every year, fifty thousand car accidents involving deer a yep. year. Yeah. Just in Michigan alone. And so people that think, well, there's no other way to take care of that. This is what people have to understand. Unless you want to bring in wolves. And guess what? You don't want to bring in wolves. No. You don't want wolves in your neighborhood. Me. You don't yeah. want to look that in the face. Yeah. Well, you did. Yeah. You know, I've, I've talked. <laughs> that story is crazy. <laughs> I, I was telling uh, a friend of mine about it, the, uh, the story of you. You were in Alberta, 
and you shot an elk and these wolves circled the elk. How yeah. many, how many wolves were there? Well, at first there was just the one, the one came in and you know, the one came in on us and I, and I, and that's one I do want to say off the beginning. One thing that I always do as a hunter is I always buy a predator tag if it's available. If I know that I can get a, a that I can buy a tag for coyotes or wolves, I always have one in my pocket because you do see you know they're out there and they're out there way more now. And this and this is an exact reason why you got to do it because literally we had an elk down. And next thing you know, we're out there kind of, you know, getting it ready to like, you know, to cut it up and stuff and get it out of there. And all of a sudden this big wolf comes, you know, it comes in and I had spotted it and we weren't really being noisy. So I ended up shooting that wolf and it kind of went off. And, you know, with a bow, there's no noise. So what we didn't realize was there was a pack there and that that was actually it was an alpha female is because of the size of it. I mean, it, you saw the size of it. Yeah. It's, it's as big as me. And it actually went off. And then we kind of thought, well, that was freaking freaky. Well, then about 20 minutes later, all of a sudden we see another one and we see another one. And we're kind of like, holy crap. So we start moving into this draw. And one of them was like making like a noise, almost like it was injured or something, you know, it was like whimpering. So we're like, what is the deal? So we, we were on high ground with the elk and then we started moving down into this ravine cause we saw the, the wolves down in there. And next thing you know, we get down in there and I start looking around and there's like hair on the trees. There's like, I mean, it looked like that movie into the gray, the gray, the gray. That, yeah. That's exactly what it looked like. The Liam Neeson movie. There was right? like, freaking hairy turds everywhere it was just there was like beds there was hair rubbed on the trees and i start looking around there's like holes dug in and i'm like i literally look at my two buddies that were there with me and i said we're right in the freaking den like you know and i think we had that elk was not too far you know our elk wasn't too far so from when the you, den. you shot an elk that they probably thought of as theirs oh they definitely thought of it was theirs yeah they wow. they definitely thought that was theirs so then once we're down there, all of a sudden we hear this howl. We're like down there, we hear this howl, and it was definitely an alpha because an alpha's the howl, it literally turns your blood instantly cold if you're right in on a true wolf howl. It's, I mean, it's like so freaking low and deep, and it's just like chills your blood. Well, you realize it's not a game. Well, yeah. Then I realize I'm like, we're in the freaking den. And, you know, I'm kind of looking down. I'm like, okay, well, I shot an elk. Then I shot that. I've got two arrows left. So, and, you know, both my guides kind of had, you know, once we said, oh, there's wolves, they like grabbed a gun. We kind of went down in there to see what was up. Well, now this happens. And next thing, after that alpha sounded off, it was like, and I mean, 12, I think it was 12 sounded off all the way around us. We're in a, we're, we're literally down. Anyone who's been in Alberta, you know that the farmland is level and then it falls into the river system. So we're literally, <clears throat> they have the high ground. There's a dozen wolves and we're in the middle and we're like, what the crap? So I just, I'm like, get your back to a tree. So we kind of all spin around and we're sitting there and next thing you know, here comes two dogs on a full blown, I'm talking like full blown, like 
this, like running, coming. And I mean, it turned into chaos. There was like bullets flying. I mean, there's freaking arrows skipping off junk. And we ended up shooting both of those wolves dead. And there's a few gunfires going off. Well, I'm down to like one arrow left. And I told the guy, I said, how many bullets you got? And he goes, well, I didn't, I, you know, I just grabbed the gun, two couple bullets. Like I didn't know we were, this was all going down. So we're kind of like, we need to get out of here. So we started backing up and next thing you know, they, the alpha sounded off again and they all reported this time there's only two or two less. So next thing I know, I'm like, kind of, we're trying to back out. So when you I, say that, wait a minute, hold on a second. You say they reported there's, so there's, they, they know that two were dead. Yes. So all of them are howling. I'm, I'm certain that the first howl was the alpha male pretty much saying, "In is everyone in position? Because then they're all like, yes, yes, all the way around. Then all of a sudden the two come. All hell breaks loose. Then we're like, the alpha sounds again, but he's in a different location. He was actually to my left, like right here. And really close. And, I mean, it's thick in there. You've been there. Mm. You know how thick it gets. So then they sound off. Well, now this time there's two less. So I'm kind of looking because I know this wolf that sounded was – and I know it's the alpha. So I, like, grab my bow and I start kind of creeping over there. And as soon as I get to where I can see, he's, like, freaking standing right there. And How far away? Hmm. 30 yards, <laughs> which actually, a wolf can cover. Jamie, pull up that picture from um, Joe's Instagram. Like it was about a week ago. You found those pictures of those wolves. Yeah. I forget who the photographer was, but there he's was, got some amazing photographs of wolves. Or Yeah. It was, it was like not the most recent one on that was on that dead moose, but it was like, that was from national geographic. That was actually a bison. That was from yesterday. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yesterday it, or the day before. Look yeah, at that. that. Okay, so that right there, that is exactly oh. the face that I saw. In the, the, he, but he was head on. He wasn't broadside. But that face where he was literally looking at me like that. And, I mean, you're in a fight or flight. Like, I'm in totally in a fight or flight. I had one arrow left on my string. I freaking grabbed my bow. I literally, I like, I, I just, I kind of looked at him. I knew at that moment. It was like he was coming. Yeah, that's it's like freaking deja vu. That's what deja the, vu the, right the there. The Twitter, dude. the um, Instagram page, Jamie, do go back up a little bit. Is C J M underscore photography? And if you go to that guy's Instagram page, he's got amazing photographs. Just and he's yeah. out there with them. There was another one that I had, and it's just right before that, Jamie. The before that wolf picture, there was another wolf picture. That one. Look at that one, man. He's got snow all over his face, and his teeth are bared. That's a cool, <gasps> yeah, that's a cool picture. Like, to me, that's pretty cool. God, wolf, wolves amazing. are amazing. They're like, amazing. And the one thing people underestimate about hunters is our respect for animals. Well, I, if I, you love them, why did you yeah, kill it? I, I freaking, I totally respect them. I love them, but I can tell you that other picture right there, when you have that looking at you in the face, I mean, I knew it was like freaking do or die. And I... I literally looked at that thing and I said out loud, I said, I'm going to shoot you in the effing face. Because I like I'm, how you don't swear. Yeah, sorry. It's cute. And <laughs> <laughs> my boy might listen. I understand. And I remember I drew back. I, like, I literally drew back and I anchored and I came into my peep 
And as which soon means it, for people that don't know, there's like a little circle that you look at through the yep, string where yep. you line it up with yeah, the sight. So I was literally you were lining brought, up the shot, lining up the shot, and as soon as I kind of brought my shot down to where that wolf was, there was nothing there. He bolted. No, I think he just like yeah, like ninjaed. Well, he if they're that wise and that big and that old, they've got to they're know what so a hunter smart. is. They might, so I mean, smart. they had to have known that you killed the elk, and they had to have known that you killed those other two wolves that chased you, that yeah, went after yeah. you guys to I try think, to get the elk. I think he came in to to think, okay, we've you called the fight, we responded. Now he's like sizing up. Okay, I've lost. Here's what I've lost. I want to know what I'm going against. He kind of came in and he freaking looked at us all, and then. That was it. Good thing they can't count. They knew you only had <laughs> yeah, two three. hours left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two hours yeah. and two bullets. Yeah, like, we how were, many bullets did that guy pick up? He only was, picked up three. It was yeah. bone chilling. I'm and sure. I, I mean, I have, you and I both have friends that are, you, you, grizzlies, cats. I mean, cats are notorious for stalking hunters, too, because, I mean, they are the ultimate hunter. Um, but grizzlies and wolves, I mean, they're, you have to be on guard. That oh, yeah. you know, there's places now where you know grizzlies are strongly becoming such a a problem when it comes to you know they have to be controlled. They're just starting to get to be too many, for, especially for the food source. Yeah, well, there's people that worry about them being wiped out, and I, I read this article about it recently, and it was just so filled with misunderstanding or misinformation, and we're talking about wiping out grizzlies, that if they did open up back to grizzlies, uh, grizzlies back to hunting again, they would be wiped out. People don't understand how it works. There's an allotment, a certain amount of tags that get distributed because wildlife biologists deem that there's too many of them, and that it's problematic for all the other animals that live in the area. You have to understand, like, when they try to, when they put tag limits on white-tailed deer or they put tag limits on wolves they do it because they've deemed that there's an issue and there's obviously yeah. people want to hunt deer but there's also an issue like we were talking about the state of pennsylvania there's some areas i don't know if it's still the case but there were some areas in pennsylvania where they brought in hunters year round no tag limits they were like just please come on down and shoot. And it was on uh, Michael Waddell, uh, his show. Oh, yeah. T-Bone uh, yep. was there. They, were, they shot like th three or four deer in a day. Yep. And it was in the middle of summer. They yep. just went down there and shot deer because there's just so many of them. And they were shooting them in like a residential area. They yeah. were in a tree stand in like this dude's fucking yard. And it's overrun with deers. I think I I met a guy that was literally begging me to come. He said there's a deer season in the residential areas, I think, in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he said there's like so many deer in people's backyards and the timbers. So he just said it's like there's just so many that they're issuing a lot of urban tags. And they Bow hunting tags. Yeah, and yeah. they have to. And they have did you, to. Did you see the bears fighting in Rock, Far Rockaway, New Jersey? Did you see that no. video? Uh-uh. <laughs> you want to see it? Yeah. Bring up that, that video. Two no-bullshit, bona fide, seven-foot, 400-plus-pound bears going to war in a residential community, knocking over fucking mailboxes and garbage cans, rolling out into the street, fur flying, biting each other. Look at the size of these fuckers. But are they... They're cute. Did anyone yeah. try to pet them or anything? Yeah, they should have just made friends. But look at these guys going at it. These are big fucking bears. Yeah, Two big are... boars. <laughs> the size of these guys. 
And so, what kind of move is that? What was what? Was that a judo throw? It was shitty jujitsu. That's like uh, <laughs> look at him. He's reaching for a back leg, dude. It's like mall he's trying jiu-jitsu. to ankle. He's trying to ankle pick. <laughs> Do you see it? They're yeah, like, went in for a back leg. Well, this goes on for a long time too, and the guy who's filming it is filming it from his car. I guess he's got his hand out the oh, window, dang. and so they go crashing through the bushes. They go tumbling out into the street. They take out some mailboxes. I mean, there's the mailbox. Good douche. These fuckers are big, man. They're big ass bears. They are. Those are really big. And they they keep going back. See, this one guy wants the garbage, and that's what it is. <laughs> one It'd be so funny if a lady just like came out to go shopping. <laughs> well, that fucking easily could happen. That's how people die. Oh yeah, this is. A lady got killed in Florida last year by one of these fuckers. Yeah, they're they're serious. They mean, I mean, I, bear well, bears. What a lot of people don't realize too, I, every year I go up, you know, you always catch, you catch slack for being a bear hunter, but I go up to British Columbia every year and bear hunt and during, and it's all spot and stock there. It's all fair chase. Um, but during the course of a six day hunt, I remember one year I saw 82 bears on a six day hunt. That's insane. I mean, it's some of the bears you might see twice. But there was so many bears, and it's like, you know what? You have to manage that. It's healthy for them, too. Otherwise, this happens. And you want to watch this in your yard? Is it? Well, this is what could happen. And yep. what's interesting is Jamie and I, we were laughing because we found this fucking poster, this billboard, that said they're all Cecil, and it's a, a bear and a lion hugging each other, and it said, <laughs> stop the New Jersey bear hunt. Like there are people out wow. there that are emotionally wreck. They're they're children. They're they're an emotional wreck. They're a child who doesn't understand that nature is a, a ruthless, vicious, beautiful, majestic thing. And wildlife biologists are the ones who know the best. You 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 these crazy emotional people that get so wrapped up in this idea that these things are these animals are like people. They have this fucking picture of this bear and this lion hugging each other and the bear has tears and the lion has tears look at this they're hugging each other it says they are ban the bear hunt they are all cecil save new jersey bears.com you guys are out of your fucking mind wow these if bears didn't exist they didn't exist and they were in a movie they would be a monster It'd be some beast living in the woods that fucking eats eats baby deer right out of the the vagina of the the deer when they they pull them out yeah I and mean, they literally catch a deer that's giving birth to a fawn and they pull them out of each other they eat cubs on a regular basis there's so much cannibalism in the bear community yeah i've seen a lot of, i've seen a community, really it could be i don't think it is I, well they, they equal rights <laughs> tell me that they, fucking story that you were telling me yesterday about the grizzly bear that got into the the shed or got into the uh, cabin oh yeah yeah just just a, the sheer power i actually have a uh, my my like wilderness father his name's Bert he's up th- up there where I hunt in BC he has stories of the wilderness he'd be the ultimate character for you to have on he's like a real life grizzly Adams he's got stories but there was a bear that kept destroying the camps and the cabins they ended up they ended up like just kind of calling the the bear er, big Earl or something and they would come to the camps. He would come in and they would have like a huge big door, you know, and they would nail in, you know, nine, 10 inch spikes through the door frame in three spots 
down the sides and then through the top. They'd nail, you know, nail 10-inch spikes, pound them through the logs of a log home to hold the door frame in. Well, they came to camp and they figured, well, this is going to keep him out because he was blowing through all the windows. Every year he'd blow through the windows. So they boarded the windows up and they had this door. So evidently he got mad. They could see where he was really mad about how they boarded the door, the windows up. So he literally grabbed the door and the whole door and well, the whole frame with the door was like freaking laying off to the side of the cabin with 10 inch spikes bent on 90 degree angles. And there was one claw there. He had evidently reached in with two claws and frickin' hooked the backside of that door frame and ripped a frickin' door out of a log home. And pulled one of his own claws and out? And pulled his claw out. That's how they knew they got the bear, because they ended up getting a permit to get the bear, and he had nine claws. Whoa. So he frickin' threw that to the side, went in the cabin. He licked the frickin' oven clean. But he could still smell that there's, like, grease somewhere inside there that he, like, wanted to get to. So the whole freaking uh, – the whole stove was smashed about this high off the ground. So a couple inches off a the ground. A couple inches off the ground. He literally just got on it and squished that freaking – a full-blown stove just like we would a pop can under our foot. <laughs> to like squirt some extra grease out the side of that big Oreo cookie that he thought it was. Oh my God. And licked it clean. Well, it gets better. So there was curtains over the sink in the cabin. And the curtains were all gone. And and um the other thing too, I think there was like there was two big five gallon things of like cooking oil that were in the camp. So Bert told me that there was like one claw mark in the cooking oil and then the freaking things like a Capri Sun. He had freaking <laughs> popped a hole in these five-gallon things of cooking oil and freaking squirted them dry like a like an old Capri Sun, threw those to the side. Well, the curtains were gone too because Bert thinks because of cooking, like the grease and crap that got on the curtains – he like freaking. They were gone. He and ate them. Yeah. Well, at the time they didn't know. They just, you know, I'm, his wife Mary Jane was like, well, you know, where, what happened to the curtains? He's like, I have no idea. But he had lived in there, so I mean, he had like piled the couch up, and I mean, he like lived in that cabin. Well, the, the bear. The, the bear, bear did a full blown ten foot freaking grizzly, mountain grizzly. So then they went down to the next camp, which was twenty miles away, and I didn't tell you this part. So they get in there, and it's just an absolute freaking wreck. It looks like a life-size mouse home. Just crap everywhere. So Mary Jane's, like, got a snow shovel, and she's, like, scooping all this freaking shit off the ground. And there was all these, like, material dingleberries. in, And she's like, what are those dingleberry things? And Bert goes... That's all the balls off the curtains from Grizz Camp. The frickin' bear had, like, ate the curtains in the other camp. Once he destroyed it, he kept walking down the road 20 miles to the next frickin' cabin, destroyed that one, and frickin' shit 20 out. 20 miles? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he was, can, the, he was the king of the mountain. Oh, yeah. They have a huge range. But, yeah, he, like, you know, frickin' 
slung dingleberry juice and ten gallons of freaking oil all across the next camp just to prove a point. Imagine what kind of diarrhea a bear gets after ten gallons of oil. Just (laughs) drink oil and eat curtains. It's probably about the same kind I get after like six chicken McNuggets. Uh, It's hard out there for a bear. It's a hard world. It is. It's just a crazy animal. It's it's such a majestic. I mean, it's we're super lucky that they're alive. We're super lucky that they're around. And that's the difference between I think um, people who are like really hardcore animal rights activists and people who are wildlife biologists and conservationists. Like both agree that bears are amazing. And that's where I think that these people are. They have a misconception. They think that. Hunters want to kill animals, and they're they're vicious, and they're mean, and cruel, and they have little dicks. And uh, some of them do, I'm sure. I'm I sure one. some of them. Mine's small. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. If you admitting that. Yeah. Well, like I said, was it you small? To... But you're a giant guy. You're like six five. It could be. That could be it. Maybe yeah. it's just small compared to everything else. I hope so. I hope so too. For you. I, I mean, for first my... part, you got to admit your problem <laughs> if you're going to move on, right? That's how you get better at archery. That's how you get better at dealing with your dick. But this. But both, but my point was that like both love bears. Oh yeah. They just they just don't want them to be a problem. So when you're looking at what this bear did to that cabin, you can say, "Whoa, the cabin's in his neighborhood." Nothing's his neighborhood. How about that? I just said it. It's all if people live out there and the bear comes in their house. It's not that the bear came into his own house. Yeah, it's a fucking person's house. Yeah, and if you don't think that way, then you're you're a problem. Yep. You're a problem. The bears are fucking bears. Yep. All right. And if you don't differentiate the difference between uh, the the value of a person and controlling populations of bear, well, you're a ridiculous person. You you you're not looking at this thing correctly. No one's saying the bear should be wiped out. But when you talk about an animal that can Far flatten a it. stove, yeah. flatten a stove and pull a door out of the frame with nine foot long spikes surrounding, I mean, nine inch, nine inch, nine yeah. foot. How crazy <laughs> is that? Some what kind of nails is that? Kind of nails that? Nails as big as the bear. Nine inch long spikes. You're talking about an insane animal that if you don't control their populations, they're going to decimate everything. They're going to, they're going to, de- the only thing that's saving them is them. Them eating cubs. Yep. That's the only thing that controls the population of them if they're not, if they're no hunt. Yeah, the only thing controlling the population is the food chain. And, yeah. you know, I told you this the other day. I I feel like as a hunter, I, I love what I've got to witness as a hunter because I feel like I've spent, I've spent way more time enjoying the creations of the wild because I've been out there. Really it's, out there, yeah. I mean, like how how else would you have gotten a chance to see wolves in that environment that you saw them? I mean, that's oh yeah, a confrontational environment. Uh, yeah, with wolves. And I mean, it, yeah, I wouldn't prefer to be in the middle of a freaking wolf attack to see them, but you see things like I told you the time where like, you know, where the time where a freaking bull moose, like probably about the size of you know the one that you've got over there. You know, literally watch this freaking grizzly square off to this bull moose and hit it. The grizzly literally just hit the freaking top back part of a full-blown moose and just broke it. And it's like dinner time. Snapped its back. Yeah, snapped it. I mean, just the sheer power. Yeah. Where was this? Up in BC. Wow. I mean, you you look at that. How far away was it from you? It was a ways off. I mean, it was like a binocular watch. But still, there's things like that. There's things like, you know, 
you talked about how um, the rivets up in Alberta, you know, where they have the bear camp. You you know, you saw like a boar. Maybe they were telling you the story. No, like, I saw a boar and a, a sow fighting. Okay, going at it. Yeah. Well, I've seen, and I, I told you this, and I actually, I shot the boar, but I s- spotted a big bear in a field, and I was hunting, and it was spot and stalk. And as I'm starting to stalk, all of a sudden a sow comes out and it starts freaking like posturing to the to the male. And then all heck broke loose, just like that. That's what it was like. And, I mean, I'm within 100 yards of it. I mean, it's ferociously loud. And then after they, like, break up, the boar goes running to this huge – you've seen the timber up there. The mm-hmm. timber's gigantic, like a couple stories high. He freaking jumps on this tree and starts going. And, I mean – and it, I'm talking, like, full speed. Full speed bear – I mean, it's like – it's an incredible chase and fight. He freaking hits this tree and he's freaking going up it like bark is just ripping out. And the the black female is going right behind him. And at the time I still didn't realize what's up until I till he gets almost to the top and I see two colored cubs up there. And he's fri- I mean, like branches are coming off. Like nothing is stopping this dude. He's freaking going. And right before he gets to the cubs, the freaking female launches and grabs the ham hock and just lets go of the tree and just freaking lets Brings the both of them down. And lets the weight freaking bring them down and just, ooh, you hear, you know, I mean, it like, boom. And then all heck breaks loose. They go up into the timber and it's just like, you know, a crazy fight. Yeah, we and, were in a similar situation where there was a, a mother with her cubs, and then the the boar came in looking to kill and eat the cubs. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we talked about there's argument to why. I haven't seen the evidence on, you know, you feel like it's just the Was Ranella f- said that there's recent evidence that shows that these bears are looking to eat these things, like, almost immediately when they come out of hibernation. Because of ease of For, diet. Yeah, because they're just food. I've, I personally think— because they always tend to be more aggressive on the cubs, from what I've experienced. The the further into May that when the you rut. get, right? The closer you get to rut, the more likely, you know. I kind of think those boars might have bred one or two sows. They're horny. I mean, so horny, and then they they're wanting another one, mm-hmm. and they know that's the only thing that's going to trigger to for them to come back in. But I, you know. After that fight broke up and the sow, you know, she ended up standing guard. She kind of called her cubs down and they hauled. Well, that big boar ended up coming out and he was, you know, it was like a seven foot chocolate. And that's the one I got, you know. So, you know, some people might be like, oh, he was trying to kill the babies. And then, you know, next thing you know, I got it. So I kind of feel like I did. I was you saved some, babies? You're a conservationist. Yeah, I was definitely a conservationist in that in that. Well, people also element. don't realize that you eat bears, too. People have been eating bears forever, and then oh, they yeah. taste good. Yep. You know, they think that you only eat deer and elk and everything else is trophy hunting, you know? Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me, the th- the just the beauties that I've seen. I've been, I've been, I love sitting in a whitetail stand, and I spend a lot of time in a whitetail stand just sitting quiet. And, you know, for me, it's it's like meditation. 
because it is so quiet at times. There's like, sometimes I've heard like birds and noises where I'm like, I've literally never, ever heard like, what is that? Like, I've never heard that. And I, one of the coolest things that I've experienced is I've been in the timber during the fall where there's just colors, like, like a painting, just colors, you know, you know how it is in the mm-hmm. Midwest. And there's days when like the first fall snap really happens when I believe trees just decide to let go. Did have you ever watched any of the Harry Potter movies? You ever mm-hmm. see that mo- that tree that just like freaking cleans itself off, and right. then all of a sudden he like just decides. Well, I've been in the timber where it was like the trees were almost communicating, and everyone just said "let go," and literally the like someone just moved a fresh canvas, just all the colors of fall just let go, and you literally watch the whole color of fall go to the ground and it's bare who can say they've seen that They're pretty rare it is amazing to see these cycles of nature to see them in person and i think that's one of the things that a lot of people are missing by living in cities there's a lot of really cool shit that you could see out in the woods there's so much so much of it is just like inherently fascinating or it, like it appeals to us in some sort of a primal way you remember that squirrel I sent you the other day? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, squirrel that the was, hawk got. Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, I was out for a little walk, and I came across a really nice buck, an awesome buck, literally dead and eaten by coyotes. And it was a deer that I know was, you know, I'd seen earlier in the season. It was perfectly healthy. And next thing I know, a month later, here it is, like dead. A, just a decayed carcass eaten. What do you think happened? Ground. You think the coyotes captured it or you think no, it got tired from the rut? It's hard to say. I think, you know, I think with any type of animal, especially when the males have such a limited time to breed, they really exert themselves. I mean, it's like, it's like looking, I've seen bucks that literally look like like that you that fighter that fought Kimbo or whatever, you know. I mean, I, 5, yeah, I literally seen them. I've seen them walking and they're like a a freaking fully skinned zombie just because they've just been running. They came too much. Yeah, yeah. They're done. You've looked like that a few times I heard. <laughs> <laughs> you get you get you get tired, man. Yeah. And I think when they get that run down, it's no different than me. When I'm traveling a lot, especially when I'm skipping time zones, and I really have a hard time getting into a sleep pattern and a recovery pattern, you just get sick. You get the flu. You know, you get the flu. You get some freaking stupid little bug that's on an airplane from some guy like three seats over that's coughing. You know, I think you just wear your immune system down, and you're vulnerable. And then when you know winter comes in, and it's it's a freaking, you know, it's tough on some well, of these Well, they don't deer. eat for days sometimes. Oh, yeah, days. They I remember just get after it. I saw a buck one time. He was just, I mean, I'd see him, like, as far as I could see with the binoculars over here. And then, I'd, you know, 30 minutes later, I'd see him as far as I could see with binoculars, like, go through this creek bottom and this creek bottom. And I was actually sitting on this, like, pond dam. 
And about 11 in the morning, here he comes. He's just like freaking, he's just walking with his zombie walk. Like he's trying to find a scent trail of a doe that's in estrus. And he's just been breeding for weeks. And I remember he's just freaking coming in. And he literally just comes running and he hits the pond. And he's sitting in the pond like with just his head sitting out. And he's like... And then he comes up out, and he's just like, he goes like. <sighs> Shakes. And then he's gone again. It's just like, holy crap, this poor dude is just like running this like marathon of the rut. And Well, there's so much competition, too, oh, in a yeah. place like Iowa. That's part of what ramps them all up is there's so many other deer there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's. You know, it's so, cool to watch. So many die that way. Well, I yeah. found that bu- that buck that day, and then two minutes later, I'm walking through the forest like, oh, here's a cute little squirrel. You know, I see the squirrel like, and he like kind of like he's like looking at me on the side of this tree like, is this person gonna hurt me? And all of a sudden, like, freaking boom! This like red tail hawk just freaking pounds this thing, and I'm like looking around like what the heck and then the hawk looks at me and starts to fly and then drops the squirrel and i and that's the i went over and here's the squirrel with like two talon marks one through its eye one through its mouth and one like did up you put that online did you put that picture on uh... no i can i can send it to jamie though if you no, want. You, should, you should put it on your instagram page because yeah. it's a crazy picture yeah it's a so, weird thing to see yeah it's you know nature's nature is interesting but it's you know I'm a conservationist I'm a I'm a huge supporter to the Boone and Crockett Club I've you know I'm, I've uh, you know really tried to become you know I've I've done what it takes to to become a, a professional member now of the Boone and Crockett Club and you know I'm really focused on trying to give more back um, on the conservation side because there's so many important things that these organizations do for wildlife as much as people want to say they you know the that I've, I've i've just never seen an, an anti-hunting community come anywhere where i'm at and put in time establishing habitat and actually doing things that grow the population and you know I plant food and I probably leave 5,000 bucks a year worth of food in my dirt to like help grow deer and like help my deer population. Don't don't you think though that there's a lot of people that have opinions about uh about animals and about wildlife that really spend very little time with animals and in wildlife. They have this very convenient idea like like when I I told a friend of mine the number the, that we discussed in the podcast earlier about uh, Michigan having 50,000 car accidents a year. And he was like, you're lying. And I'm like, dude, Google it. And he looked at it and he just sat, he like literally looked at his phone and sat down, like plopped down. Holy shit. I go, you're not there. If you're there, you would know. Like it's, oh, it's, over, it's overwhelming because yeah. his opinion or his point of view was that these hunters are just these people that are just assholes that like to shoot animals. Like, they do need to do this. Like, they need to do this. And you might not think it, but you, you there's no way you have a survey of the whole world yeah. or the whole country. You just don't. And if you did, I bet you'd have a different opinion. Have you seen some of the numbers, like what Allstate Insurance posts about how many vehicle 
um, deaths and like dollars and vehicle collisions there are just with white-tailed deer with one insurance company let's find out i have it on my laptop if you want me to grab well jamie could pull it up i'm sure it's on google yeah it is but just google how many car accidents involve deer nationwide yep i bet it's if if michigan has fifty thousand a year it's mind-blowing that even the number of deaths would is well in cam haynes's hometown some guy just died some guy hit a deer and then the guy in front of him died because, or the guy behind him. The guy hit a deer, went flying through the air, 175 to 200 fatalities every year, and 10,000 injuries. There's approximately 1.5 million deer-related car accidents annually. I'm going to say that again. There are 1.5 million deer-related car accidents annually. You didn't know that, did you? Nope. Over okay, $1 billion dollars in vehicle damage and 175 to 200 fatalities, as well as 10,000 injuries. Oh, my God. And 200 deaths. It's a, in 2012, it said 200 deaths, $4 billion a year. Yep. Fucking Christ. Exactly. And a, lot of again, people, a lot of people don't know that. The continent is large. And the, you it's know, big. What, let me ask you this. It's funny. People... People whine and cry about how much insurance goes up. How much do you think it would go up if we didn't help that? Yeah. Well, uh, also, mean, not does that. How about health insurance? Because of ticks, Lyme, Lyme disease. Oh, yeah. Well, this- and just your injuries. More people going in for hitting one. Yeah, absolutely. My dad, my dad actually, he, he always wanted to have his teeth perfect. And I remember... He wore braces for a long time to get his his teeth fixed. And, like, no sooner than he had them done and was wearing a retainer. And my dad's like, he's got a truck at home, like a big truck, but he never drives it because he always, he, like, drove a little bitty Honda. And he freaking hit a deer. He hit a buck, like, a month after getting his, like, finally the dentist saying you don't have to wear your retainer. He hit a buck. The horns stuck through his windshield, and the horns stopped on his steering wheel, and the body came in and hit him in the face. Oh, my God. And he had to, like, get—he literally has fake teeth in the front. Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I had no idea. 1.5 million. I told you. Yeah, but that's it's, it's crazy. crazy. And I, what That's a way better statistic it, than yeah, the 50,000 in Michigan. Yeah, that's nothing. I mean, I mean, well, well it's that's not a, nothing, lot. But it's yeah, a lot. It's a it's lot. It's all. It's a lot, but in the in the whole scheme of things, you know, my wife my wife's from England. Um, and she had never hunted. Her family never hunted. I mean, they're just they have no idea about that stuff. It's, you know, they they have no relation to hunting, right? So when she came over, she was, you know, she knew I hunted and she was open-minded to it because I, I showed her numbers like this. I said, okay, I understand you don't understand it, so let's talk about some of this stuff. Do you realize this? Do you know that at our house, if you drive around, you're going to see a deer from your car like almost any time you're driving around our area after dark or Wait until you see how many dead deer are on the side of the road during the first three weeks of November driving down the highway in Iowa. You know what I mean? So she kept an open mind, and she realized really quick 
we couldn't grow a garden, you know, in Wisconsin. They were like eating us all the time. I mean, they were everywhere. And she's just like, you know what? I get it. I never saw this many. I didn't see this much stuff in in England. We didn't have it. That's why we weren't hunting there. It's not because people aren't necessarily hunters. It wasn't in some areas. It isn't a needed conservation. It is here. That's the reality. It well, is. imagine if you could see all 1.5 million car accidents in a in a, like a scene, like oh, one God. after the other. And bang, 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 bang. Because you got to think, there's 365 days a year. There's 24 days in a uh, 24 hours in a day. So if you could look at all the footage that's you, accumulated yeah. every year in one giant loop, could like one highlight it? reel of could car you, accidents. You couldn't watch it in a year. Well, you you couldn't. Well, you would watch two people die to, or 200 people die too. But just the sheer volume would kind of wake people up. If you could watch the sheer volume, if they put together a movie – that was three hours long. That was just all the car accidents in the last six months with deer. People would go, oh, my God, we're at war. We're at war, and they're attacking cars. They're literally suicide bombing cars. They're jumping out in the street and taking out drivers. Well, for over three hours, you would see someone die every minute Yeah. in that compilation. Yeah, you just see boom, 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 smash, hoof to the face, uh, antlers to the neck. It was over and over and over again. You'd have a lot more candidates for that LSD uh, trial for, I mean, there'd be some serious traumatic syndrome. Oh, the MDMA? Yeah. Yeah, the MDMA trial that yeah, Rick Joplin talked about. Yeah, that would flip people yeah. over the end. Well, listen, we got to get the fuck out of here. It's 4 o'clock. Oh, yeah, you we got did shooting it. to do. We just, we just banged through three hours. How about Thanks, that? Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Thanks, man. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for coming down here, and thank you very thank much you. for all the coaching, man. It's been amazing. I've learned so much from you. And anybody that's into archery, I encourage you, go to uh, Knock On Archery on YouTube. and Knock um, On TV. Knock On social. TV. Yeah. And um, Knock On TV on Twitter. I put that already up on my Twitter page. And there's the television show that is on the Sportsman's channel. John Dudley, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, everybody. Try archery. You'll like it. All right, we'll be back tomorrow with the great Dom Irera. See you.